Well, a very good Monday morning to you on this March 1st. And thanks for tuning in to Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you back in the Real Talk studio alongside the show's technical producer, albeit separated by plexiglass, Samuel G. Brooks. It's good to see your face again. To say, oh, there we go. My mute switch was on. It's good to see you too, buddy. Yeah. Oh, there was like I like I said on Friday, there was this big void over on that side of the room. It was the just, universe it was like, it was hard to watch. Yeah, the universe is right again. It is, and so things, we, uh, things feel normal. Well, things feel whatever the version of normal we can have right now is. Yeah, yeah, nothing. That's well said. I yeah. always catch myself. I say I can't wait, or you know, it's nice to sort of feel normal. And you go, well, it's not normal. It's a, it's a, it's a different. I we get letters all the time when we say, uh, and by letters I mean emails and tweets. Uh, when when we say something like the new normal, people will oftentimes write in and say, I I, I don't prefer that phrasing, the new normal. Yeah. So we always try to be hyper aware of that. But but I'm feeling great. Everything's great. Got the green light. Wanted to take all the proper precautions. Uh, if, if you didn't hear last week, I did the show from home. Uh, you know, a contact had uh, had, uh, you know, had tested positive for COVID-19. It kind of throws you into a bit of a wind wobble when that happens and uh, had an opportunity to uh, um, experience the, you know, the sort of the side of of Alberta Health Services calling to, you know, you go on the website or you call when you when you first get that text message, you, you it sort of blindsides you a little bit. Right. And you go and you go, OK, uh, I, I'm into one now and everything changes all of a sudden. Uh, I, I got it when I was sitting here in this seat in this studio. And the very first thing I did, uh, the very first thing I did was throw my mask back on, pump the hand sanitizer, close my laptop, get my bag and Get the hell out. That was those. And then, and then there we were fi- skid marks on the ground when I came in the next day. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> what you, you sort of go, yeah. OK, well, hang on. Like, you know, um, you know, in in um, and I'm not I'm not I'm not even being facetious in, in crisis management. And this is small scale. Uh, in my uh, situation, but but the first step you take, you you just gonna like what's what's the very first and most important thing I got to do right now, and we'll figure it out from there. But I had a chance to, you know, um, go on the website, try to figure it out, figure out how to get tested. There's not drop-in testing, or at least it wasn't available when we needed it. So you make an appointment. We got some great advice from a, a an RN on the phone. Talked us through it, helped us to determine was I a close contact, was I not? I was not indeed a close contact, which which made life a little bit easier. But, uh, you know, you still get tested. I think I told you it was it was 33 hours from start to finish from from when I got the text to when we got our text from AHS letting us know about our test results. 33 hours, which I thought was decent. I, I think that's a pretty good. Tra- like I was expecting longer. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. I, but when you're hanging in the balance. Oh, that's a very long 33 hours. Because I was feeling I mean, you know, I was feeling for you. Yeah. Was it, you know, every single person that is exposed in a way is all of a sudden gonna have their heart in their throat well and that's just it because like you kind of think about the spillover effects is like you know i i felt i, I was following your like you were talking to ahs and i was kind of following your direction on this and and you know sort of it was like i didn't need to get tested unless your test came positive but that yeah. didn't you know but it also meant that like kelly didn't go into work the next day she did everything oh is that home. right yeah she just decided that well, good like, for her i'm, gonna, I'm that, gonna stay at home and that's the I right was, decision i was supposed to you know move a freezer into my grandparents house and i canceled that right away because i was just like i'm not walking into a house with seniors if there's the slightest chance that i could have an infection so yeah, yeah it turns out that, that you yeah. have been exposed and then all of a sudden you think back to all these oh contacts or these, but doesn't it isn't it wild how it gets you thinking uh like how many people you interact with, like whether it was to go get gas or whether it was, you know, crossing paths with someone at the grocery store because you had to be there. I mean, all of a sudden you're going, man, I had all these 
yeah human connections even at a time when it feels like we don't have many human connections anymore at least at least not in person we're talking to a former colleague of mine today i'm looking forward to it in about an hour and a half from now uh riaz magji was the uh, host of breakfast television vancouver when i was hosting breakfast television edmonton so we got to hang out every once in a while remotely you know, we, we check in on each other's shows, and but it's been a while since we've talked. He's out with a brand new book, and I'm very much looking forward to getting into it. It's, it's all about the, the power of human connection. The book is called Every Conversation Counts, and Riaz is going to join us to talk about the five habits of human connection that build extraordinary relationships. And this guy's a relationship builder. I'm just I'm not going to oversell him. I'm not going to overhype him. But when he comes on the show, I think you're going to notice right away he's a very compelling person. And I'm looking forward to what he has in store for us. We're, we're continuing to sort through for our uh, listening audience and our viewers that are joining us from the province of Alberta. Obviously, a big budget late last week. We took a look at it. Our Friday roundtable was centered in on that. We tried to give you four different perspectives. Uh, we did give you four different perspectives on that. And, and uh, you know, many of you thought it was one of the, the greatest roundtables that you've seen in the history of Real Talk, which... You know, I mean, that either means something or it doesn't, Sam. I think, you know, we're we're coming up on 70 the, shows. I was about to say the history of a show that's three months old. Yeah, the history. Yeah. Well, one of the greatest in the history of the show that, that's three months old. Uh, but still a high compliment because we've had some great interviews. On the other hand, some of you thought that that hour, that roundtable absolutely stunk. And you took an opportunity uh, to take issue with some of the things you heard and some of the words that you heard on the podcast. We've got some emails on that and we're going to leave some time to get to your emails. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can be in touch with the show. And again, on our website, ryanjesperson.com is where you can answer our question of the week. We're going to get into the results of our Y station question of the week. I tweeted a bit of a teaser last night and i'm not sure if uh if it was a surprise to you or not we we asked you to make some of the tough calls it was like a choose your own adventure version of the question of the week and we asked you to make some tough calls when it comes to putting a budget together you know if you if you were uh in charge of of you know finding 10 billion dollars in savings or or here mike's hot buddy um if you were uh in charge of of uh, you know hammering down a deficit how would you do it and what would be some of the tough calls that you would make? And it was really interesting to hear from a whole bunch of you. More than 900 of you responded. 80% of respondents, 80% of respondents say bring on a PST. 80%. It's called the political suicide tax in Alberta. No politician believes that they can get away with even talking about it. You know, I mean, it's, it's one thing to say Jason Kenney's not going to go down in history as the Alberta premier that brought in a sales tax, a provincial sales tax to Alberta, right? You have to you have to believe that it would be the very last thing he would do. It would be his very last resort. But what about the NDP? Their finance critic, Shannon Phillips, was with us on Thursday's show. Remember, you remember when I asked her about it? She was like, eh, nah, like nobody wants anything to do with it. When Joe Sisi was NDP finance minister, I asked him about it probably on three or four different occasions when he was minister. He couldn't get away from the question fast enough. So 80 percent of our respondents say bring it on. Interesting trend. I wonder if times are changing. I know some people are going to try to spin it as like, oh, yeah, Jesperson's lefty tax and spend audience. Right. But then the audience has some other interesting things to say. For example, almost 30 percent of respondents are open to the idea of forms of privatized health care. Now, I know that's going to make some heads explode. Coming up in just under an hour, we're going to get to those. 
But we've got a great conversation coming up in in just one second with one of my favorite political commentators in the country. Wildly entertaining. Tons of great insight. You see him on the national often. David Hurley is joining us in just a second. But we kick our show off by reminding you that our presenting sponsor, Bitcoin Well, is the best, the easiest way to A, learn about crypto and B, buy and sell it. You may be taking a look at the trends right now and you're like, I, I feel like this whole Bitcoin thing, it's getting it's getting too big. I can't ignore it. Now, I'm not saying sell your house and, you know, invest in Bitcoin. That's not my advice. Although some people may argue you should probably do that or maybe you should have done it a few years ago. Regardless, the point is, if you're like the average Canadian, you probably have a bunch of questions. No better place to go to get your answers than Bitcoin. Well, you'll find the link to their website right at the top under the sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well, as mentioned on this Monday morning, we kick off the first show of the week by welcoming a political consultant. Uh, He's the principal partner at uh, a leading polling and research firm, the Gandalf Group, and you see him on the CBC quite often. He's uh, previously a senior partner at Earnscliffe Strategy Group. He's been a top advisor to former Prime Minister Paul Martin, and he was the Liberal Party of Canada's campaign co-chair in 2004, 2006, David Hurley. It's great to have you here on the show. I'm a big fan. Thanks for making time for us. I am thrilled to be on the hottest show in Canada. Well, there you go. It's a good it's a good pairing. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to dancing with you for the next 20 minutes or so. Hey, you know what? I, I want to you know, I want to sort of pull back the curtain for our audience because I suspected that this might be the way that you roll. And it's kind of the way that I roll. But you and I have not spent hours plotting and mapping out this conversation. We got together. We said, let's talk politics. And, and here we are. Is that kind of how you are? You like a go for a coffee, go for I a beer? I have no idea what you're going to ask me. Yeah. And that's kind of the idea. I'm looking forward to seeing how you think on yeah. your feet. But is that that's yeah. I mean, you know, if you're a political strategist, right. a political consultant, you've got to be able to take on any political story. And you probably have a gut instinct on it locked and loaded, I would imagine. Yeah, but those gut instincts aren't always right. Sometimes it's useful to have some reflect time for reflection. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I may well say things on this show that are ill-considered well, hey. uh, based on my gut instinct. <laughs> well, well, that's how that's how shows go viral, David. So I can only hope that that's the case. Uh, let, let me ask you about something. I want to talk federal politics. Uh, I want to talk about the, the vaccine rollout and some of the criticism around the liberal government. I want to talk to you about the relationship between Alberta and Ottawa. We talked to Natural Resource Minister Seamus O'Regan on Friday. He painted a picture of of collaboration. Uh, and then right after our interview, he tweeted that some people might argue that Ottawa and Alberta will never get along, but that's not the case. So I think that there was some optimism from some folks. Others thought that he was just BSing the whole time. But I'd be curious for your insight on that. I want to talk about the new governor general and, and, and the selection there. But but we're about to talk about a sales tax here. We did some polling of our audience, so to speak. Our question of the week, you're a pollster professionally, about 900 respondents, uh, 80% of them said they'd be open to a sales tax in Alberta. Do you buy it? I mean, political parties wouldn't touch a sales tax in Alberta with a 10 foot pole. Well, <clears throat> I have to say that um, surveying your audience isn't quite the same as a random sample of the population. And so um, I'm not sure that your poll is reflective of Alberta uh, sentiment overall. I, I have a basic political truism, Ryan, which is that I am 
I mentioned this to Stefan Dion when he first raced the green shift with me back in 2007. And I said, I am unaware of anybody being elected in any jurisdiction at any level on a promise to raise taxes. So Alberta probably needs a PST and it's probably something that you can't run on and get elected. So it's probably something that a government will, some government will deny in an election that they're going to do and then we'll do it and then we'll be destroyed as a consequence of that. But that's likely what it will take. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think you're right. I mean, we look at even, you know, Rachel Notley as premier of Alberta introducing that carbon tax and, and how much ground I think the conservatives gained or at least how much political fodder they were they were able to turn up by saying, you know, pointing out she didn't campaign on this. You know, Jason Kenney often calls it the largest tax increase in Alberta's history. Um, I'd be curious to know if the carbon tax was the reason why the NDP uh, weren't able to go back to back in 2019, but it was certainly one of the big campaign talking points for the United Conservatives. You think a sales tax, I would imagine, would probably ramp up the rhetoric even more than the carbon tax did. Well, yeah, it would be much more significant to people's uh, uh, to people's pocketbooks uh, than the carbon tax has been, and especially since it doesn't come with any rebate. So it would be a flat out hit to people's standards of living. Be very difficult be a very difficult thing to do. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, this is how we ended up with the GST. You have to remember the story about the GST. And Canada's finances would be in desperate shape if we didn't have the GST in place. And Mulroney did that. And Mulroney did not campaign on it in 1988. uh, But he did it before he left. And the story that I've been told, which I love, is that at the final cabinet meeting where they pressed the button to go, on the GST that David Crombie from Toronto, former mayor of Toronto, who was a member of the cabinet, looked around and said, you know, we're all going to lose our seats, right? And everybody sort of put their heads down and chuckled. Yeah. And, and they did. Um, But it's that kind of, it's that kind of fortitude, like we are prepared to lose our government over this, that it will take, but you're going to ask people to be courageous and campaign on it. Well, then they'll never be in a position to do it because if you campaign on it, you will lose. Mm. Fair enough. Um, David, this is uh, an interesting time and a tough time for Alberta, obviously. Now, now when you talk about economic recovery, uh, you you can talk about whichever jurisdiction you like. You could talk about it municipally. You can certainly talk about it federally. I mean, we look at what they're doing down in the United States. I mean, a one point nine trillion dollar package to try to address it for our American neighbors. Um, If you were advising the prime minister right now on Canada's economic recovery plan, or if you were advising that senior cabinet, where do you start? Uh, well, I, <clears throat> I think on a national, I think the national question and the Alberta question are probably somewhat different. Um, the national question, I think you start with addressing uh, who has lost jobs through COVID. Uh, where has the economic devastation been? And, you know, you and I, Ryan, both know a lot of people who've not been touched by this at all financially or any other way other than being inconvenienced by it. Uh, But who lost their jobs? Low-income people lost their jobs. Women lost their jobs. First of all, every economist I talk to tells me that this is directly tied to childcare. And that if we want to get women back in the workforce, we need to to have a much more robust childcare system. So uh, as a a first step toward uh, economic uh, recovery, 
I would be looking at, people always talk about infrastructure and infrastructure is going to be a big part of it. And when by that, I mean physical infrastructure, building things. Uh, but that isn't really where the jobs have been lost in Canada. And those are not going to replace those jobs. And so while we need physical infrastructure, we need social infrastructure as well. I think the Alberta situation is different. If I was the national government, I would be looking very, very closely for ways in which I can be helpful to the transition to uh, a new economy for Alberta. And they've got this $100 billion uh, economic investment fund set up that they're going to start to distribute in the budget, right? And, you know, I talked on my podcast to Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister of the Environment last week, and he left lots of space and lots of room for continued applications out of the oil sands, whether that be in the areas of hydrogen. He did say that the last oil is, the last barrel is going to be burned sometime before 2050, but that didn't rule out uses for hydrogen and that didn't rule out carbon capture. And he was interested in both of those subjects. And I would say that it, he left enough room that there's a chance for Seamus O'Regan to be the national unity minister here to get his hands on a fair share of that $100 billion and take it out to Alberta and Saskatchewan and invest in massive carbon capture and sequestration and invest in uh, blue invest in blue hydrogen and, and get, some new, get, get some transition activity going in the Alberta economy. Uh, we should mention your podcast by name, The Hurley Burley. It's one that I subscribe to and, and very much enjoy. And, and if we have time, I want to pick your brain on a Thank couple you. of the, the great interviews that you've had there. Uh, David, is there is there a relationship between the federal and provincial government or, or even federal and regional governments? I want to include Saskatchewan in this uh, anywhere else in Canada, like what we see in the prairies and with Ottawa. Yeah, nice, nice shirt, by the way. Nice tarp. Uh, for, for those that are listening, I'm coming on an Alberta show, I've got to represent. I've got to represent. Yeah, I'm on an Alberta show. That's riders, right? I'm just saying the, the monitor's halfway across the room from here, but he's repping his riders green, everybody. Um, uh, so there yeah, you absolutely. go. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. Drawing a line in the sand. There's no, there's no in, more rabid fans in Canada. I think I can go on. I think I can go on record and saying you this. can absolutely go on right? record. Saying Sam this. Brooks agrees with me. I'd say, I mean, like Oilers fans are, are fanatical and, and Leafs fans are long suffering and Habs fans have their own thing. And but but CFL fans, Saskatchewan fans, I think have got to take the cake. Well, this is existential for us. <laughs> This isn't a sport. No. This isn't a football team. This is this is Saskatchewan. This is the whole shooting match. I don't think I don't think people even outside Saskatchewan, most people even realize that that season ticket holders, like it's normal for some season ticket holders to drive like eight hours each way to get to games. Like that's not even that's not even something that you would brag about in Saskatchewan because half the people in the stadium probably did that. Yeah, they came down from Prince Albert or other parts of northern Saskatchewan, or they came back from Calgary where they relocated to, for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's get back to the question, though. In all seriousness, uh, you know, you see a, a federal government that wins literally zero seats in two provinces uh, at the same time, I think, recognizes, uh, I would assume, the economic importance or at least the historical economic importance. And I would argue, obviously, a bright economic future if managed properly of these two regions, you see provincial governments, most especially in Alberta, very critical of the federal government, making a ton of political hay by taking shots at the federal government all the time. If you are the federal government, you buy a pipeline, you, you know, you, you have you can make arguments, I think, that you're doing the best you can 
to support the industry. Obviously, people will reference legislation like Bill C-48 and C-69, but how do you even begin? I mean, I'm asking you a, a question that took three minutes for me to ask and probably you could answer over the course of three hours. But if you're advising the prime minister, I mean, how do you manage this relationship? Well, I think if you're talking about, I'm going to answer this two ways. I think if you're talking about government to government relationships, you have to continue to do the formal thing. Um, there's no getting around premiers. There's no getting around provincial governments in a federation. And so I presume that the Kenny government and the Mo government are much more obstreperous in public than they are in private. And I presume that in private, you can still make deals and get things done. Um, you can't count on that government to give you any credit for it if you're the feds, uh, but you can still you can still do things, and that is still your obligation to do. I would say politically, if I was advising the federal liberals politically, I would stop talking to the West as the West. Uh, I think as long as the political frame is who's best for Western Canada who cares most about Western Canada's inclusion in Canada, that the Liberal Party is never going to be in Western Canada, the answer to that question. And so the more we feed into that frame that that is the issue, that the West needs to be addressed, the less likely it is that the Liberals will have any success. On the other hand, I think that you have, and Alberta is the perfect example, cities in Calgary and Edmonton that are very large urban metropolitan centres that have all of the issues and concerns and values that large urban centers tend to have. And if I was the Liberal Party, I would stop talking to Calgarians and Edmontonians as Westerners, and I would start talking to them as Calgarians and Edmontonians who live in a large urban center and who care about services and who believe in diversity and tolerance and inclusion and who uh, want great school systems and who want great healthcare systems and want great parks. And I would talk to them, not as I'm gonna solve Western alienation, but the Liberal Party understands urban Canada. And that's the appeal I would start to make. Over the weekend, I saw uh, for the first time the the new uh, commercial spot for the Conservative Party of Canada. It's Aaron O'Toole. He's, he's, he's walking down sort of a promenade, um, introduces himself casually. He says, hi, I'm Aaron O'Toole. If you don't know me, I'm the leader of Canada's Conservatives. He talks about a couple of quick talking points. He keeps it candid. He keeps it casual. He's got a sort of, a, you know, a bit of a smile on his face. And then he says uh, something along the lines of, uh, anyway, it was nice to meet you, uh, but I got to go. I got work to do. And then he, he walks off camera. I thought it was kind of an interesting insight and gives you a bit of a hint. I mean, this is this is your wheelhouse uh, messaging and, and uh, you know, the branding of a leader and the branding of a party. What direction do you see the conservatives taking this in with Aaron O'Toole? And and what are you expecting to see from them as 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 I you know, I mean, I think some people were expecting the prime minister to call an election. Doesn't look like it's happening, obviously, in the spring. But you have to assume that conservatives and everybody else is gearing up for it regardless. Well, I don't I don't think the conservatives want an election, but they have to be prepared for one. I don't think it's clear what lane Aaron O'Toole is taking. And I think it's partially because it's not clear what lane the party in the caucus will allow him to take. I think they're headed toward a very disruptive policy conference uh, in which it appears that the SOCONs have taken over many of the riding associations and are gunning for policies like uh, abortion and et cetera. 
and I think that O'Toole is in terrible trouble in his caucus. Um, and so I'm not sure he's got his hands on the, on the wheel uh, to guide this thing right now. He clearly seems to want to moderate in a way that his party is resisting him moderating. So all they can do is put out these kind of introductory videos that talk about biography and make him appear to be a nice human being, which I think genuinely he is, by the way. I know him. I think he's a, I think he's a, I think he's a pretty good guy. And I think there's elements of his bio that are quite impressive to people. Military service, for example, tells people a lot about you. It tells you that they've, it tells people that you've got discipline. It tells people that you've got fortitude. It tells people that you've got stamina and strength. It's a lot of good things to say. And I wouldn't, in, in, on Twitter and among the commentariat, a lot of people are laughing at the fact that O'Toole is still introducing himself this long after he became leader. But nobody who's involved in uh, commentating on politics really seems to understand how little any of the people in politics are known by anybody. With the exception of the leaders, nobody knows who anybody is. Let's just start with the Minister of Finance and Deputy Prime Minister. If you think that more than 20% of Canadians could recognize a picture of Christia Freeland, you're wrong or would recognize her name. And I conducted focus groups not, not two weeks ago in which out of 30 people, maybe three of them knew who Aaron O'Toole was. So you are still looking at introducing him. I don't think relying on his bio is a bad idea at all. I think his bio is a very positive thing for him, but eventually, Eventually, they're going to have to say something to make a case for change. They're going to have to put an idea on the table or a policy on the table that tells people not just that the liberals are failing or the Trudeau isn't good enough, but that there's some reason to believe the conservatives would do something better. And that, I think, is completely what is lacking right now. Even people that are angry about the vaccination rollout, I don't think you'd find many people who would confidently assert that the vaccination rollout would have gone better had the Conservatives been in charge. I just don't think they've positioned themselves in any way on those issues. David, I want to ask you about that, uh, and we'll leave time for it, but I want to circle back. I don't want to assume anything, take anything for granted. When you say that you think that Aaron O'Toole is headed for uh, choppy waters uh, as part of a policy conference, you think that he's, he's maybe or could be experiencing some popularity or support issues uh, within his caucus. What do you think is the root of that, and, and what qualities or uh, what, what would a leader bring to the table to to hold that or hold those problems at bay? Well, I mean, first of all, I think his biggest problem is bad polling numbers. If he was 10 points ahead of the Liberals and looking like he was headed to be the Prime Minister, everybody in his caucus would shut up and uh, just hang in there. Um, but that's not the case. And when you are the leader of one of the two major parties and you fall below 30%, when your number starts with a two, you are going to face significant internal uh, angst in your party. There's no doubt about that. So I would start with the fact that they look like they're in trouble and would lose an election. So that's the first source of his problem. The second for, part of his problem is that he ran a bait and switch leadership campaign. So he knew that in order to win the leadership, he had to have the support of Leslin Lewis and Derek Sloan. And he appealed directly to those supporters and made commitments and undertakings that he now wishes to be relieved of those burdens and not to pursue those things. And they're, they are uh, not accepting that. 
And so I think you've got a combination of political professionals inside his caucus who think that he is headed them, taking them down the road to defeat. And I think you've got a grassroots party that thinks that he lied to them in order to win the leadership. It's a very combustible combination. Hmm. Let's talk about the liberals, uh, the federal government. Um, it was uh, announced on Friday, I think it was, that there's, uh, you know, obviously new vaccines. The federal government says that it hopes to uh, start receiving doses of that AstraZeneca vaccine this week, um, announcing that they'd approved it. It's the third shot to, to receive regulatory approval. Canada's ordered 24 million doses. Uh, the prime minister telling reporters, telling Canadians that, you know, he believes that most people should be vaccinated uh, by the end of the summer. If the federal government's able to get most Canadians vaccinated by the end of the summer, do you think that Canadians will give that their stamp of approval? Will Canadians perceive that to have been managed and handled appropriately? Do you think the federal government right now is at risk of losing support for for how things have been managed to this point? I think they've easily passed their most treacherous point. I think that February was the month where they were most vulnerable because vaccinations were not coming in. There were delays from the factories. We were falling well behind other countries. If the Conservatives were going to be able to make that into an issue that defeated the government, it would have been in February that they did it. And they weren't able to do that. I think the government's home free on vaccinations now. And the focus and the... um, and the pressure is going to shift to the provincial governments on their rollout of the vaccinations uh, that they have. And so I think the federal government, frankly, if these vaccines come in at the rate at which it is projected they will come in, I still think a spring election is a very viable possibility. In this country. You do. Wow. OK, uh, let me ask you this before we run out of time. We appreciate your availability this morning. Uh, we asked our audience members by way of our question of the week. This is, I guess, about a month ago. Uh, we had we had a fun kind of a playoff bracket format. So uh, format. So envision March Madness on who they would choose to be Canada's next governor general. Um, absolutely and totally 100 percent putting you on the spot. If you guess it, I'll ship you something cool. Would you, by the way, I mean, like, let's see if first if you can nail what would be your guess, uh, an audience, a podcast or a live streaming audience nominating a Canadian to serve as governor general? Any guesses? You want a hint? Yeah. His career has been out of this world. <laughs> oh, Hatfield. <laughs> Sam thinks another it's astronaut. Sam thinks it was too, another astronaut. Another astronaut. That's what we said. Sam thinks my, my clue was too easy, but it's like, you know, <laughs> I mean, completely well, unfair. Well, you who do you think the audience guessed with no hints? And I went, I went too easy. What do you, so Chris Hadfield is I don't think it's going to happen. But what do you think the PM is going to do here? Oh, I think the PM is probably going to put in place some process that um, gets uh, the uh, naysayers off his back. I mean, this is the biggest non-issue in the country. I mean, part of the reason I had trouble answering your question is I literally don't care. Like I could <laughs> care less about who's in that job and who gets that job. So uh, I, uh, you know, I, I don't even think about it very much, but uh, I, I assume that I assume it won't be Hatfield because I assume it won't be another astronaut. And I assume that they're going to double down on looking serious and looking for somebody that uh, can handle the gravitas of the job and isn't going to do anything embarrassing. So um, 
they'll have some sort of process. I wouldn't be surprised if that process ended up with an Indigenous candidate, to be honest. I wouldn't be surprised to see Perry Bellegarde be the Governor General, for example, and I've and I, I've been. You know what I'd like to do is um, I, I'd like to get a roundtable conversation, a panel discussion with Indigenous Canadians on this because I've heard I've heard some some great points. You know, some people say that it's it's time that an Indigenous Canadian serves in that role, and others have said this this role inherently represents colonialism, and and why would an Indigenous Canadian want or accept the job? Do you have an opinion on that? I do. I, I just conducted, I, I put out a, a, a series just to uh, promote myself for a second called Through the Looking Glass, in which I conducted four focus groups with Canadians on the issue of race and racism and in Canada. And one group of black people, one group of indigenous people, one group of Asians and other people of color, and, uh, and one group of white people. And let me tell you that everybody knows who Viola Desmond is now. And they know her because she's on the $10 bill and they know her story and they know what the significance of that is to Canada. And similarly, uh, the indigenous people I talked to did not take the position that, that you articulated, Ryan. They said to put an indigenous person into a profile like that, uh, to give them that kind of prominence in Canada would be an enormous statement about the value the Canadians place on indigenous people. I'll tell you what, it's been a real pleasure having you here on the show. Uh, I appreciate you doing it. I'm a big fan of your podcast. People should subscribe right now to the Hurley Burley. Leave a review. Give them five stars. Enjoy it. Go deep. We didn't even talk about your. I told you when I reached out, I wanted to talk about your conversation with Hamish Marshall. I thought that that was fascinating. Yeah. How have he ran. Back. Yeah, we'll have, have you back. back. I'd love to have you back. That's exactly what we'll do. In the meantime, have a great week. And, and thanks for joining us, David. You too. Take care, Ryan. You got it. That's David Hurley. He's the, the host of the Hurley Burley. You see him on CBC, The National, obviously a, a nationally renowned pollster, uh, political commentator, former top advisor to Prime Minister Paul Martin. We appreciate his availability. Here on the show, we're so grateful. The support of our uh, partners is what keeps us going each and every week, and that includes the team at Local Waste. You know the deal. They present trash talk every Friday, and it's and it's quickly becoming the most cathartic exercise that many of us participate in all week long. But during the week, when local waste talks trash, it's they're talking to companies, big and small, companies that are sick of dealing with the big multinational faceless corporations that want locally owned, locally operating service provision. And if you want to learn what that could look like for your business, you want to see what it looks like to have somebody fight to earn your business. Give them a call right now, Chris or Lauren at 780-242-9746 or check them out at localwaste.ca. Also wanted to let you know it's it's March 1st, which means that this week, I can't believe it's here, this week, Friesen Brothers will open its 15th Alberta location right here in Metro Edmonton, just off the Anthony Hende at Rabbit Hill Road. For more than 60 years, they've been supporting Alberta producers and they're very proud of that relationship. And they're proud to serve the communities that they're in. Friesen Brothers opening March 5th. That's this week. You can check out their new store in South Edmonton. They are Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Let's take a quick look at the headlines, Sam. Here's what's going on in the world today. Well, as mentioned Friday, the announcement that Canada has ordered 24 million doses of uh, the vaccine, talking about the AstraZeneca vaccine that was recently approved 
Uh, Canada hopes to receive those doses this week um, as the initial inoculations from Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna are starting to, well, they're starting to wind down, which means that Canadians are getting vaccinated, which is great. Uh, Canada also ordering a couple of million jabs from the Serum Institute of India. And they're hoping that about a half a million of those will reach Canadian shores this week. As early as Wednesday, Dr. Supriya Sharma, with the chief Medi- uh, she's the chief medical advisor at Health Canada, uh, telling the CBC on Sunday uh, that the regular had received information from Johnson & Johnson as well. Uh, the U.S. regulators giving that the green light over the weekend. They're seeking approval for its own vaccine in Canada, too. We'll keep on top of these stories for you and let you know what you need to know. Did you pay attention to what former President Donald Trump had to say at CPAC over the weekend? The former president essentially putting his party, the Republican Party. Do I say his former party? I don't know. On notice. Although, depending on who you ask, his former party might be the Democrats, but I digress. The news is supposed to be objective, Sam. I'll do my best to be objective in my presentation here. But former President Trump telling Republicans he intends to to use his hold on its grassroots to try to suppress the vote heading into the presidential election in 2024. And of course, having been exonerated in his second impeachment trial, he can run again. And he hinted that he might. So that's an interesting story to keep an eye on. In local news here in Edmonton, a bit of a troubling display over the weekend as Highlands Norwood MLA Janice Irwin posted this photo of her constituency office. As you can see, somebody defacing the the front glass. Antifa liar, it reads, said the popular Edmonton MLA. Good morning to everyone who continues to denounce racism and white supremacy, no matter how angry or uncomfortable it makes some people. And she saw a good amount of support on that over the weekend. It is a bit of a supercharged atmosphere right now. If if you're listening or watching from outside Alberta, you may not be aware that the provincial government dropped a, a budget uh, just a few days ago, mid last week. We were happy to provide coverage of it, most especially on our Friday show that we did talk to the finance critic Shannon Phillips on Thursday. It's a budget that depending on how you look at it is not as tough as what some people were expecting or totally devastating. If your neck of the woods is greatly impacted and the University of Alberta would certainly qualify as one of those. We want to get into this story. So it's a pleasure to welcome to the program uh, professor of uh, political science, the Department of Political Science at the University of Alberta, Dr. Lori Adkin and making his debut on the show, Ricardo Acuna, who's on leave right now as executive director of the Parkland Institute. He's president of the Association of Academic Staff at the University of Alberta and the chair of Oxfam Canada. To the both of you, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Hey, Ryan. Thank you for having us. Uh, Dr. Adkin, uh, it, it's it's been impossible to ignore for anybody that that follows you on Twitter. I know that it's 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 been... Um, a difficult few days for you personally, I think, as you've been trying to make sense of of what you've seen, the cuts aimed at the University of Alberta. I've seen many people describing them as as malicious and targeted. Do you believe that's the case? And if so, why? Well, uh, we have a long history at the University of Alberta of uh, standing up to various policies from governments in Alberta. Um, it's you know, there's a, a certain number of people who've always um, spoken up uh, to, in a critical way, about the policies going back, well, at least the 
and I can remember, and I came here in 1991, and uh, so lived here through the Klein years, and there were always some voices at the University of Alberta that were critical of government policy. Uh, and I think that the governments, the Conservative Party governments have, have tended to see the University of Alberta as a place where they hear voices of criticism and dissent. And they, you know, they haven't appreciated it at all. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there are some specific um, areas that they feel um, that we have been critical of that, that have gotten their backs up, like uh, asking for, a you know, the consideration of uh, policies to phase out uh, bitumen extraction over time because of the climate crisis. Uh, and, uh, of course, there was the incident in 2018 of the university awarding an honorary doctorate to David Suzuki, uh, which created a, quite a backlash from um, the base of some of the, you know, some of the base supporters of the UCP party. So we have that history. And, um, you know, that seems to, in some ways, set the University of Alberta apart in the province in the view of, in my view, I mean, I can, I'm only speculating because I'm not inside their heads and I, you know, I'm not an insider. I don't know exactly what their conversations are, but their reactions to us over time have always uh, tended to, to paint us as a, as a bastion of uh, dissent and, uh, and radicalism that, that, that uh, they don't like. You know? Ricardo, this is, uh, I know for, for a lot of people about the money, for a lot of people, it's about the job losses um, for, for a lot of folks. It's about the uh, well, what what Dr. Adkin was just describing there, the idea that this might be the manifestation of some sort of vendetta. Uh, let me ask you to paint a picture for our audience of, of how significant this is. The U of A right now saying it's going to need to find about an additional seven million dollars in savings after its funding was cut by 60 million dollars for perspective. Um, per U of A president, Bill Flanagan, and I want to ask you about the university's response from the president's office to come, um, says that funding has been cut by a total of $170 million over the last two years. Uh, Ricardo, what does that actually mean to a university like the U of A? Uh, it, it, it's bordering on making it impossible for the university to actually fulfill its mandate in this province. Um, that's $170 million percentage-wise, that's uh, about a quarter of the funding that uh, the university has historically received from the government of Alberta gone in just two years. In practical terms, before this budget dropped, before this new $60 million cut, the U of A was already in the process of eliminating 1,000 full-time positions. The University of Alberta had already lost 200 contract instructors from the previous year. And that's just the people that we can count. There are countless, countless folk at the University of Alberta who were on short-term contracts or ongoing contracts that just didn't get renewed. And those numbers aren't reflected in these statistics. At the same time, we're seeing a huge increase in tuition because this government has deregulated tuition to the point where the universities can raise it 7% a year. So tuition is going up. Students are facing more crowded classrooms. We're seeing future teaching and research and student services supports on campus. Um, it really is becoming untenable at the University of Alberta. And now we have to figure out how to deal with this extra cut. And it's not going to be pretty. 
So th- some of these might seem like obvious questions, uh, Lori, but I want to ask you, worst case scenario, what does this mean? I mean, when, when you when you when you look at it, are you are you most concerned that I mean, or maybe you may say all of the above students are going to be taking on larger amounts of student loan debt. Fewer students will have university or fewer students will perceive university to be accessible to them. Um, obviously, uh, you have to imagine that that some students at, at the age of 17, 18, 19 would consider leaving Alberta to, to study elsewhere? I mean, are these all the things you're thinking of or is there one focused point of concern for you? Well, there are many and, and Ricardo just outlined some of them. Uh, you know, I just saw recently some figures about how the, the government had predicted that increasing tuition fees by 7% would increase our revenue. And in fact, what happened was our revenue went down from tuition. And, you know, so why is that? Um, you know, do students want to be paying 7% more for their tuition this year to stay home and watch uploaded lectures on their computers all day? You know, the whole experience of going to the university is already taken away by, by the pandemic. Um, and the switch to online teaching is not working out so well for everybody. But, you know, raising seven to tuition by 7% a year on an ongoing basis is making it, you know, university education less and less accessible for many, many people. And it's making, you know, it less attractive for young people in Alberta to stay here and do their education here and then work here. And many of them are considering leaving um, because they can go to universities in other provinces where, where the tuition fees will be quite comparable. Uh, and they don't have the picture in front of them of, of uh, increasing fees and increasing debt. Now, most of my students work um, in order to pay for university, and they still end up with large debts when they finish. Um, and I, I just, we're already in a province where post-secondary education enrollment lags behind other provinces. This is not a way of encouraging and helping young people to get a post-secondary education when nothing could be more important to their future and to the future of the province in the middle of all the crisis we're experiencing than being able to get a post-secondary education. So it's just completely, you know, perverse and wrong-headed and counterproductive on the part of this government to be, to be doing this. Um, so that's what's happening, I think. I mean, it would be really good to get some students on here and get a student perspective on what's happening to them. But from a faculty perspective also, uh, you know, there's an enormous intensification of workload. And that's the picture going forward where we see um, with the the various demands and pressures coming from administration, some of it driven by the budget cuts, uh, we can see growing class sizes, teaching more courses um, with almost no support at all because funding for teaching assistants and for um, support staff of all kinds is just disappearing uh, and there's attrition of faculty. So, you know, the, the, on one end, the, the workload uh, is growing enormously for professoriate and that has an effect on the quality of education because you can't teach more courses with double the numbers, uh, constantly trying to learn new pedagogical techniques and technologies to, to cope with the switch to online and all of the marketing pressures uh, with no assistance and expect that to produce a better quality of education, it just won't. There's just no way of having one's cake and eating it too here. And this happens over and over with this government. They seem to think that they can 
you know, diminish resources to the public sector indefinitely with no consequences. And as our university leaders say things like, you know, okay, this is a big hit, but somehow we'll go on managing to offer you a fantastic, you know, world-class level of education and student experience and uh, so on, they are also not acknowledging adequately the consequences of these cuts for public education. It's really serious. Let me uh, reference Jeff Labine's uh, great reporting for Post Media. He talked to U of A President Bill Flanagan, who's who's not been in the job that long. I think, well, certainly under a year, right? Uh, and maybe six months. I don't remember exactly, but he, he's relatively new. Uh, point being this from President Flanagan, quote, all Albertans are doing our very best to steward the province through this very challenging period, but to require the University of Alberta to shoulder Almost one half of the required provincial savings on post-secondary spending is unreasonable. Uh, Flanagan goes on to say 25 percent of Alberta's post-secondary students attend the U of A, yet the province has required us to bear nearly 50 percent of the reduction in provincial funding. It's a disproportionate cut. It's particularly disappointing given the extraordinary measures the university has taken to reduce its administrative costs. Ricardo, what would you like to see the president saying, if not that? I mean, I think what we need to see is the president reminding folks that we are a public institution and public institution implies and requires that it be supported by the public through the government, through taxation. This whole notion of, I mean, I think it serves the government's purposes to have the U of A fighting the U of C, fighting Athabasca University for what little dollars they're handing out. And it's important that we not get into that, right? The bottom line here is that The post-COVID recovery in Alberta requires the kind of research, innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship that is only possible with a thriving and well-funded post-secondary education system. And I think that's what we should be highlighting. That's what we should be reminding Albertans. This isn't about some elite group of folks cloistered in some brick buildings by by the river in Edmonton, right? This is about the future of this province. The future of this province economically, that path does not go through the oil patch any longer. It requires innovation. It requires creativity. If we want jobs, if we want economic diversification, we need to fund our universities properly. And I think this is the message that our leaders should be transmitting to Albertans to ensure that Albertans are letting their elected officials know what the value of post-secondary education in the province is. Ricardo, I'm glad you I'm glad you invoked that whole idea of the uh, I don't think you specifically said ivory tower, but the but the but the palatial brick buildings overlooking the North Saskatchewan, the you know, the word elite is oftentimes invoked to talk about universities. People sort of spit out the words to be critical. They spit out the words of a liberal arts education. I think people oftentimes talk about how, you know, they, they believe that that some funding we've even seen it from some elected representatives funding for post-secondary should be tied to job creation. And I know that that can prompt really sort of uh, fervorous debate between people. Um, Laurie, let me ask you first. Do do you believe that there's almost sort of an ideological rift right now? I mean, do you get the sense, does the average Albertan have an appreciation or an understanding of the contributions of post-secondary education? Or or do you think that there's almost different encampments right now? And I'm talking among the general population, those that provide the political support. Well, there's always been a strong... um vein of anti-intellectualism uh, and resentment towards academics in Alberta. I don't know, perhaps 
there is also in other provinces to some extent. Uh, you know, and, and it's, as Ricardo said, it's important for spokespersons for universities to try to communicate to the public what we do and why it's important. Um, and also, um, there, you know, people go into, into universities because they want to do various kinds of research, they want to teach, um, they don't go in it to become millionaires. I mean, it's not, it's not like, uh, you know, people compare us to the private sector to some extent, but I don't think um, the motivations are the same for most academics. And uh, I think most academics really care very much about their mission of teaching and um, research in the public interest. Uh, you know, I, I, I could go on about why, you know, wh all, all the kinds of things that we're doing that are really, really important to the future of this, this province and we could be doing more of. And, and perhaps one of the problems is that we need to be doing more uh, research uh, with communities. So, you know, university community based type of, of research um, that would help people to really see how the work going on in universities can help, uh, how we can work with communities to address some of the problems we're facing with a, a transition to a low carbon economy. Um, you know, there's so many dimensions of this and universities could be playing a bigger role. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's so important to Alberta that, that we combine these knowledge bases in order to address these crises. And, so, I mean, yeah, there might be a sentiment out there that we are a kind of elite. Um, I, yeah, if there's a history to it. Um, yeah, I guess maybe people ought to get to know us a bit. I just, I see it. I, I see it. And, and Ricardo, I want to ask you the same story. When, when there are cuts announced to universities, there are people that are enraged. There are people that are ambivalent. And there are people that celebrate it. And 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 it's always somewhat baffled me. I mean, it's, it's it, you, you see the same thing. I'm not trying to draw parallels, but you see the same thing when there are, are mass media layoffs announced. There are people that are troubled by it. There are people that don't really care. And then there are people that love seeing journalists unemployed. They, 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 they gleefully embrace it. And I've often looked at the two scenarios and thought, in the context of post-secondary, are you, are you happy that it's going to be tougher for people to get an education? Are you happy that... It, that less research is going to happen, research that might save your life, quite frankly, one day on the journalism side. I mean, we don't need to spend too much time talking about that, but the same sort of thing. Are you happy that you'll be less well served by investigative journalism? Are you happy that that people in power will be held to less account? It's always blown my mind. Uh, Ricardo, what do you make of it? You know, it's it's and I think it really is just about people getting kind of painting a picture of who's doing this work and what's happening at these institutions and not actually, uh, and in that case, you know, we've failed. We haven't told our stories. So I'll give you an example, right? When people talk about the tenured, you know, professor and all of this, they've got an image in their mind. Almost 50% of the teaching at the University of Alberta, the teaching of undergrads, is done by contract staff. These are staff that for the most part are working four months at a time. They get a four month contract to teach a course, that contract ends, then they get another four month contract. They have no job security. They're some of the lowest paid workers in, in the academy. 
um, that's that's who we're talking about. That's who's losing their jobs. That's who's not getting raises, right? Um, so I think we, we need to tell those stories. Again, that's who's teaching half of our students at the University of Alberta. So it's not... It's not these, you know, folks riding around in European vehicles just raking in the money to think. It's people doing the hard slog of teaching, especially this past year when they've had to pivot to teach online courses without the technical supports or, or the university supports available to them, uh, working two, three times as hard as they did before, still with no job security and no extra pay for it. So I think you know, we need to do a better job of, of letting Albertans know about those stories and who's actually teaching folks. We know that enrollment across the province right now is at record levels. That comes with the pandemic, right? When you have a pandemic, when you have a collapse of your main industry in your province, people want to go back to school to improve. They're coming to universities and post-secondaries to do that, right? So you can't, you can't at the same time say, well, these, you know, things provide no value and then look at those statistics and say, well, no, there is a value here. It's in our interest to make sure that those people that are going back to school right now are well-educated, that they receive the proper supports and a proper education, and that we don't yank resources while they're trying to find a way to keep contributing to this province. I recognize that this is a sensitive subject matter, but but I want to ask you about it because I wouldn't feel like I, I, I did a legitimate interview without touching on compensation and tenure and, and and I don't know too much about the structure but what I do know is that every time I talk about this I get well I, I get kind of the uh, deep throat style emails from people that that like create email accounts to send us information <laughs> and they and they say look at how much this person's getting paid and look what's going on here but when it comes time for job cuts look who's losing their jobs and Ricardo you you know you talk about the you know, the, the untenured lecturer that gets a four month term and, and, and really makes relatively a pittance. I mean, I've, I've seen people with, you know, PhDs or have done postdoctoral work that are making 60 odd grand a year. And you kind of go, geez. And then you see people that, that make a pretty penny on the university. I'm not saying they don't deserve it. I'm not saying they haven't earned it. I'm not saying any of that. But there is a disparity and there seems to be divisions within faculty. Uh, now, this is an outsider's perspective based on what people have told me. Um, Dr. Adkin, let me ask you first to do, do potentially. I mean, I, I don't know if I mean, the whole point of tenure is you don't have to participate in these types of thought exercises. But ultimately, do you think there might need to be a bit of a re envisioning of look at Ricardo? He looks like a little, he's really curious to see how you're going to answer this. Do we need to re envision how people are compensated, how tenure works in, in, in a way that might be for the good of the team, the star player taking a bit of a pay cut so they can. I always use sports metaphors so they can keep that third line checking line intact. I'm going to avoid the sports metaphors here, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to say I agree that there's too much inequality within the university. Uh, I think we should, you know, be addressing some of these questions about why administrators and some of the superstar academics are getting salaries that are so much higher than other other ranks and uh, and job categories, uh, I think that does tend to make us look like an elite institution from the outside. But the reality is what Ricardo was describing is that you know 50% of the teaching is being done by people who are super exploited, and uh, this is wrong. And I don't think that what's driving these budget cuts is uh, you know some concern to to enforce equality. On the institution, I, I think it's just that it's kind of an animus towards any any form of, of public service and this this view that uh, education and, and health and and anything that can be commodified should be commodified. 
uh, on the part of the UCP governments. They they don't they just don't see the usefulness and the necessity of um, post-secondary education as a public good. Um, so uh, you know, yes, uh, on one hand, I, I acknowledge what you're saying, and uh, uh, I, I I personally do support um, some measures to address these inequalities within the institution. I think it's completely wrong that the institution is having to rely upon um, super exploited labor to, to, to manage to continue doing what it does. And we shouldn't be in this position. We shouldn't be in this position at all. We're, 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 a, we're a school. I mean, we're, 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 edu we're education institutions. We are not um, businesses. We are not intended to be businesses, and uh, and we shouldn't be in the position of of of, of trying to find um, you know the, the cheapest possible source of labor to perform the work that we do. I, I think that this is you know it is worsening inequalities within the university. These budget cuts, um, and there are there are fights for us within the university too. Uh, no no question about that. And, and, I've been engaged in those for 30 years, as Ricardo knows. So, yeah. I'm well, I'll tell it. you, I mean, like, as we're having this conversation live, um, I, I'm I, as we speak, I'm, I'm receiving messages to my personal phone from people that work currently at the University of Alberta or who have been recently laid off at the University of Alberta that want to see a more meaningful conversation along these lines. Um, Ricardo, you're, you're president of of the uh, the Association of Academic Staff at the University of Alberta. Can you see this conversation happening? You know, I think I think there's other conversations that need to happen before it. And, and we have we have this really strange habit in Alberta of when we see one person being compensated fairly and one person being exploited, we say the solution to that is to exploit both people instead of bringing the person that's being exploited up. I think we tend to come at these conversations the wrong way, right? And let's start by fixing the situation of folks being exploited in the academy, right? Just like, you know, we often hear Albertans say, well, you know, these people over here lost their jobs, so those people over there should lose their jobs as well. I mean, those, that's, it seems to me that that's the wrong way of looking at it, right? Let's, let's find ways to stop the exploitation, and then we can talk about equality. One quick stat, because the, the province of Alberta, the government loves to draw comparators. So on salaries is one place where I'd be happy to see those comparators be brought to light because the reality is that post-secondary institutions in Alberta spend a lower percentage of their costs, of their expenditures on frontline teaching and support staff than does universities across the country. So we're actually paying our people less in post-secondaries in Alberta than in our comparator provinces. So if we want to draw those comparisons to the rest of the country, I'm happy to have that happen. I, 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 I um, we've reached the time that I've asked both of you to stand. I know you've got other things to do, but I, I just have to ask real quick, Lori, this has really not, I guess maybe it does have something to do with what we've been talking about, but do you have these, these, and I don't have the information in front of you, these heritage homes on campus that are being sold off for a dollar. Now I know it costs like 125 grand to move a house. Probably that's a guess. Um, so it's not like they're free, but, but I, a lot of people have been really disturbed to see these, these historic houses moved off campus. You're, you're nodding. So I'm assuming you do, you, you do have an opinion on it. I'm disturbed too. I'm really disturbed. I, I think this is a terrible idea. They're beautiful old houses. They've been used by, you know, different groups on campus for years. They were, one of them was a was a daycare center. 
um, we should not be tearing them down. And I don't know, you know, why we can't hold off on making a decision like this. Maybe in 2023, we'll get a government that won't, you know, put us in such a horrible budget position that we start looking at how to strip mine everything off the campus. You know, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a bad decision. Uh, I don't think it's a necessary decision to take right now. And, uh, and, and there are a lot of people who, who appreciate the historical value of these buildings. Uh, and we haven't been consulted about it at all. Uh, there's, I don't think there's much any support, really, for doing it. So I, I hope it doesn't happen. Yeah, these are these uh, ring houses. I'm, ju- I'm just reading the report on CBC News here. These these historic ring houses. It's it's hard to believe that houses built in the 1910s. I just I don't know. I'm not saying anything profound here, but when you've got a house that's like 110 years old and you're making decisions that feel somewhat knee jerk, I just ugh, it makes me nervous, especially in a city that's done so well at absolutely demolishing most of its historic resources you just see what there's there is left and you i just quite frankly i'd like to i'd like to see people padlock themselves to the front porches to be honest these are the last four too all, all the rest have already been torn down yeah. and uh, and it worries me that the, the pandemic becomes an opportunity too for people to do things like this because a lot of us would go and padlock ourselves to the doors right <laughs> yeah yeah, that's a good point. Dr. Lori Adkin, uh, Ricardo Acuna, want to thank you both for making the time to talk to us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. You bet. Uh, I've been keeping an eye on the live chat through these conversations. Um, I wanted to read this text. I won't say who it's from, obviously, but but uh, from someone who, who has worked at the University of Alberta and who was recently laid off. Um, <laughs> Scott, sort of the uh, the eye rolling emojis. It says, oh, my God, spare me. You have to actually teach and do your jobs and can't get teaching release anymore. I don't feel bad for a single tenured prof at the U of A. I'm sorry uh, from somebody that was there up until a short time ago. Luke wonders, what's what's the reason for getting rid of those houses, by the way? What's going on in the space? I'd rather they be moved than torn down. Uh, they are for I saw that. I think you can get them for a buck. But you got to pay to move them. That's kind of the thing. You wonder if maybe they could go to Fort Edmonton Park or Heritage Park down in Calgary or something like that. I don't I don't know if there's a oftentimes you have to have, uh, you know, in, in our neighborhood where we live, there's a lot of these historic homes. Sam, you have to have a real conviction. It's actually not that different than installing solar on your house. At this point, if you only want to govern, and I know that, that Jake and his team at Kubi Energy could probably make the cost efficiency argument. We do have a solar panel coming up on the show in the next number of days, but you can't base, and same with restoring heritage homes, you can't base your decision 100% on the dollars and cents. You have to have a conviction. You have to have something driving you to do it. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, it's I mean, like, as you gloriously pointed out, Edmonton, we have this proud, proud history of knocking down anything that's more than 20 years old. Yeah. And it's, you know, kind of neat stuff. I, even when you walk around the U of A, look how much brutalist architecture there is on that campus. And it's on the backs of old historic buildings that in, you know, the 70s and the 80s got the wrecking ball. And it's it's kind of, tra- I mean, university campuses around the world, I, I think one of the things that is 
I would say a joy to be there and is a very intangible part of the experience is the beautiful old heritage buildings that sure. they tend to have. And, you know, it, it's it's things like this that when you commoditize everything, like Dr. Adkins said, um, you're going to see everything through the lens of a dollar amount. And yeah, the, the stuff that actually has cultural value to us is going to get the short end of the stick. I love this comment from Michelle, who's wondering, can I buy one of those houses for a buck and then donate it back to the university? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that they've thought of that, but that's a great idea. Uh, Marv says, yeah, Fort Edmonton Park doesn't want them. Uh, maybe. Let's get to the bigger picture here. The, the budget, you know, <laughs> Mark says it's a travesty that those ring houses have to be torn down because of the current financial cuts made by the idiots across the river. He's talking about the government. Cassandra says, that's truth from Ricardo. It would also be great if hours worked would be listed alongside salaries that are publicly posted. Some people work Way too many unaccounted hours. Karen says as a support person at a university, the hiring of contract workers every term is very labor intensive, very time consuming. And I do agree that their salaries are embarrassingly low. Yeah. Kim says Ricardo's accurate. Albert is the worst that, you know, I'm hurting. So everybody should hurt instead of I'm doing so well, so we should all do well. And Kim says it's it's the wrong approach. Cassandra says we should make it fair. Bring everybody up. She references, you know, punch up. Don't punch down. Colette says Ricardo's bang on. It's a race to the bottom. Lorraine says I'm sad to see what would be left of this province in two years. Jennifer says universities should not be relying on contract faculty, but the problem's not tenured faculty pay the problem is lack of funding i mean we've got some we've got some people who are absolutely furious with me for my comments uh, to shannon phillips last week about if i were negotiating on behalf of government with public sector unions i would start at a zero percent increase people were furious some people were furious um I'm trying to remember the word that somebody called it, but 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 people and I just I sat there and I thought, and I said to one person, I said I I advocate for healthcare workers every single day, but there are also budget realities, and when you're looking at a 19 billion dollar deficit, and there has to be some reckoning. And by the way, Alberta, brace yourself because the the rumor mill suggests that there could be some pretty significant cuts to public servants pay announced this week soon uh like to the tune of seven eight percent in some circumstances which is a big cut it's a big cut but at some point you got to have a meaningful conversation about what's going to happen and, and where are the difficult decisions and where are they going to be made it's a perfect segue into the results of our Y Station question of the week. We'll get there in just a second. Let me remind you how proud we are to be partnering with the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. They've got that 2021 Jeep lineup covered, the one that I'm talking to you about all the time because I'm super excited about it personally. The Gladiator, these Rubicon Wranglers, how great are those? They're basically like four-wheelers out of the box. They've got the fuel-efficient Compass, and then this year they have that seven-passenger Grand Cherokee and the Grand Wagoneer as well, which everybody's really excited about. You're not going to find anybody in Alberta as well with a better selection of Ram trucks. 
And right now they can offer 0% financing up to 96 months or discounts up to $17,500. Their websites have all the details, St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Also wanted to remind you that the teams at Dairy Queen in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, there's six locations there. They love to know that you're a real talker. So whether you're ordering on the delivery app and you want to leave a note or whether you're heading through their drive through whatever the case is, if you're popping by, let them know that you're there because Real Talk sent you. We're talking about the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. Those are Mark and Mike's stores, and we're proud to partner with them here on Real Talk. So Y Station each and every week helps us coordinate our question of the week. And this past week, we were doing kind of a two-parter. So this this past week, we asked you to make difficult decisions. It was like a choose your own adventure relating to the budget. We asked you to make some difficult decisions on where you would cut or where you would dial back spending, where you would find efficiencies. However, you want to phrase it. We asked you to make some difficult decisions this week. Now that we've seen the budget, we're soliciting your response. And you can complete that by checking out RyanJesperson.com. Sam, why don't we take a look at why station does a great job with this top line report. If you're one of our Patreon subscribers, you've already seen the full top line report with your exclusive access. But let's get into some of these highlights that the team at Y station has, has pulled out of the data. These are really interesting, very clear views on taxes from real talkers. There were there were nine hundred and four of you that completed this question of the week, this survey. Six percent of respondents say raise taxes on everybody. It's a negligible number. Six percent is obviously very low compared to some of the other responses we see. Seventy six percent say raise corporate taxes and 80 percent say raise taxes on our highest earners. So eight in 10 believe that there's room to raise corporate taxes and raise taxes on the highest earners. Are you surprised one bit, Sam, to see that? Not one bit. No. Well, based on what? I think that there is um, now. OK, I'm speaking as an over caffeinated lefty. So just bear with me here. But he, oh, he, he identifies himself, everybody. <laughs> But I think that there's a real appetite. There, there's, um, you know, quite frankly, as Stephen Anderson so br- bluntly pointed out several times on our panel last week. Is on that Friday, we, yeah. Yeah, we, we seem to be very invested in corporate welfare. We seem to be very invested in this race to the bottom. We have, we already have one of, if not the lowest corporate tax rate in North America. And you know what? It's not bringing investment into the province. That, that this, this illusion that low taxes is the only things corporations care about while we continue to not build out our infrastructure, not build out our education, not build out our health care, not build out the things that make people want to move to this province and work for those companies. It's just it's backwards thinking. The team at Y Station pulls key findings from these reports for us, and they're always interesting to read through. Here are some of them. They they point out that you the respondents to these questions were, quote, insightful and realistic. The team at Y Station picked up that you recognize that budgeting is a complex problem. It'll require hard work and difficult time to change. There's there's a hesitancy, generally speaking, among the audience to allow any budget solution that would impact frontline workers, including first responders, teachers and nurses. So there's not a lot of an appetite uh, for any immediate. We're talking about salary rollbacks, right? Layoffs, salary rollbacks. There's not a lot of appetite for that now. Let's get to some of the other highlights, because here's where it gets really interesting. I mean, the PST conversation is a very interesting one. 
Um, this is based on what you told us last week. 78% of respondents want to see a provincial sales tax. Some of our uh, Patreon subscribers and, and others that saw my, my little tease on Twitter last night said, okay, well, maybe we should talk about an HST, like a harmonized sales tax. In other words, it would just tack on percentage points to the GST. The federal government would collect it. It would allow it to be implemented uh, you know, a little bit more easily, more efficiency. Fine. Okay, fine. But generally speaking, a provincial sales tax saw support from these respondents. David Hurley doesn't buy it across Alberta, doesn't think it would fly. I thought his insights were interesting. Let's get to some more of the highlights. This is what you were telling us last week. 67% of you would be okay with reducing public funding of separate and private schools. Now, I was intrigued by how this question was asked because private and separate schools could very well and, and maybe arguably should be two different conversations. I think, well, I mean, I think they are two different conversations. And, and I only say that is, you know, I mean, okay, stating a giant, giant, giant bias I come into this conversation for, like my mom was a lifelong employee teacher worked her way up to like upper executive of ECSD Edmonton Catholic School Board. So I have like a bit of an investment in the separate or Catholic education system in this province. That being said, it's operated like the public system. It is operated as part of the public system, whereas private schools are, you know, uh, academies built with private money that people pay their children to go to for some sort of a leg up on the public education but system. But they're still getting 70% yeah. of funding, right? 70% right. of what would follow a kid to a public school follows that kid to a private school. And 100% of funding follows a kid to a Catholic school or, 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 yeah. or a separate school, separate so schools, to speak, yeah. in Alberta. And there's a long history of Catholic separate schools in Alberta. I thought it was interesting to see um, people suggesting that they would have an appetite to see that funding dialed back. I mean, I think it makes perfect sense my opinion to amalgamate boards public and catholic boards i think that that there's a ton of duplicity there that's unnecessary let's take a look at some of the other highlights let's get to these before we get to what real talkers had to say because oftentimes it's the you know tell us more that gets where it gets really interesting the comments that you leave on this 29 percent of listeners would support privatizing health care in some fashion three out of ten would support privatizing health care in some fashion now Here's where it gets complicated because people will say people will want to write off some of the responses here. 80% want a PST. Obviously, look at the audience. Look at the host, right? What's the reputation? Like Sam jokes about over-caffeinated lefties. Well, what about that? What about three out of 10, 29% of respondents that are okay with privatizing some forms of healthcare? I was surprised that number was that high. 30% with regards to the popularity of a political idea is not atrocious, no, no, not at all. And and I mean, I think that, you know, to me, it, it's kind of privatizing some of our healthcare is is one of those like giant generalities that I think uh, there's so much nuance to that conversation because, you know, there, there's extremes of private healthcare. We can look at the American system where like hospitals are owned, owned by corporations and your insurance might pay for you to go to one hospital and not another. I don't think anybody wants that. You know how many of our respondents, you know, what percentage of our respondents are OK with privatized hospitals? Oh, I know it off the top of my head. Was because that an actual question? Yeah, it was an actual question. Okay. What would be your guess? Five or less. Sam Brooks. This is what this is why this guy. This is why we're so lucky now. Two percent. Two percent of respondents said that they're OK with the idea of privatized hospitals. So there you go on that front. Yeah, because I, I think that, you know, when we talk about and I don't really even know where I stand on this, too, because like I think that things like 
um, certain elective surgeries or things like uh, stuff like uh, physiotherapy and massage therapy and, and some of that kind of stuff. I mean, like our entire mental health system is more or less privatized at this point. So it's like a- another thing that we do have to acknowledge is we do have a lot of private health care right now. Um, I don't know. Personally, if I have much appetite to expand that, I'd like to see more of those services rolled into the public system. But, you know, again, a third of our listeners kind of see it in a different way. But I think that what part of the healthcare is privatized is the absolutely critical question here. Yeah. And that's a fair point. You know, David says on our live chat right now, says there's a lot of privatization in healthcare, And there is. I mean, your family doctor is is operating a private business, chiropractors, dentists, physiotherapists, massage therapists. I mean, there's a ton Right. Pharmacists. I don't know if that even counts, but probably. Luke says we already do have some forms of healthcare privatized. He says doctors offices are private. This question is too vague. Uncle Jemima says, uh, am I even allowed to say that anymore? Uncle Jemima. I, I mean, I think the user means it as a bit of a joke, but I'm not yeah. I'm, I'm not I entirely sure what's going on there. Saturday Night Live was poking fun at that this weekend. Um, Uncle Jemima says, you know, uh, Donna says privatizing healthcare is a slippery slope. Uncle Jemima says it increases prices for literally everything with no evidence of where your money's going. It says the same thing the carbon tax is doing right now. Let's get back to your responses on the survey. Here's here's an interesting one. More than 14 percent of respondents. So it, it might be one thing if we give you a a spelled out question, like, what do you think about this? Yes or no. Or would you choose this or that? But to have a write in answer where 14% of respondents hit the same answer when it was not an option on the poll. This is a write-in point. 14% of respondents specifically mentioned that the Canadian Energy Center, the war room, needs to be cut. 14% took the time to write that in when it was not provided as an option, which was interesting. Let's let's dive in, Sam, if you want to share my screen for a second here, let's dive into some of the top line report. If you're a subscriber of ours on Patreon and you can do that via RyanJesperson.com, we send you these every Sunday night. You get all the data. You can sift through it at your pleasure. Seventy seven percent believe that to address Alberta's historic deficit, we should find new revenue sources. Seventy seven percent, sixty five percent. We believe believe we should increase taxes. Thirty eight percent say we should reduce expenditures. Thirty eight percent say we should spend less. Seventeen percent, by the way, say we should utilize one time revenue sources, which could be selling off government holdings, the Heritage Savings Trust Fund, whatever your whatever your feeling is there. Uh, keep scrolling through this. This is interesting. Uh, we, we talked about this. 80% believe that there's room to raise income tax on the highest earners. 80% say create a PST or a harmonized sales tax. 76% raise corporate taxes. 63% new specific consumption taxes like taxes on luxury goods. 16% believe we should provide municipalities with additional tax powers, reduce their provincial funding. This is a story that's all over our radar. Sam's going like two thumbs up, wide eyed. This is a story that we'll get into. I mean, obviously, figuring out a budget and, and, and coverage of this budget and serving a national audience at the same time uh, means that we'll, we, we'll be touching down on stories. A big story is how municipalities have seen a lot of costs downloaded to them. 67%, two out of three respondents believe we need to increase resource royalties. We need to, to take more from the companies that are, that are harvesting Alberta's natural resources. 
Let's get to the write-in questions, though. These, these are the answers. These, these are really interesting. When it comes to specific cuts, uh, here's what some of you had to say. Cut the Canadian Energy Center. Cut the war room. Introduce a UBI, a universal basic income in Alberta. Reinstate a carbon tax we have control over. Introduce new tax brackets for the wealthy. One viewer here says another option, as much as I don't really like it, could be something like the land transfer tax in B.C. It's not great for people buying homes, but it generates a healthy amount of revenue for the province. Others say stop with all the panels and the investigations that are looking into everything and delivering nothing. Well said. Another says end corporate welfare. Start taxing churches. Another listener said Alberta is no longer in an economic position to ignore the implementation of a sales tax. Start low, 2%. See what comes of it. The audience member says, I don't understand how people are against a sales tax when not having it costs us more in the long run. Someone wanted to see service sharing agreements with Saskatchewan. And another says, start budgeting for our collective futures, not our political futures. I thought that was good. I wanted to read this from an audience member. I don't know who it is. Uh, we don't get the names, and that's kind of the point. We want people to be able to speak freely. Why station doesn't pass along any of that data to us, uh, nor do they collect it, as a matter of fact. I don't think you don't sign your name on those questions. I've done them a couple of times. Uh, but here's from someone. I wanted to read it. The team specifically passed it along. So the, so the email here is actually from Chris Henderson, the senior partner, the strategist, chief strategist at Y Station. He says, Ryan, you get a lot of um, comments in the surveys that are like, you know, great job and kick ass show, he says. But I passed He said, I thought I'd pass this one along because it's 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 critical. Um, and he says, and I think that it's well-meaning. So this listener says, I got to be honest with you, RJ, your advocacy on reintroducing health care premiums. I don't know if I'm advocating for it. I'm just saying that's one of the options I would explore. But I'll read the email. Your advocacy on, on reintroducing health care premiums is very troublesome. Any return to Klein era policies in which public services were gutted, unlike anywhere else in the country for the past 30 years, is extremely detrimental to the future of Alberta. Uh, I also appreciate you taking criticism like a champ. It's rare to see these days, and I respect you for it. Immediately, I know you'll be asking, okay, that's cool that you disagree with my opinion, but then how can we address the current economic pitfalls of healthcare? Well said. Well, says this audience member, fundamentally, we need to return to social democratic policies instituted by politicians like FDR during the Great Depression. Because whether people want to recognize it or not, we are in a second Great Depression right now, and we need government support in order to get through this uniquely challenging time. That's been created similar to the condition of the previous Great Depression through the greed and exploitation of the middle class by the financial and political elites. Goes on to say, how do we deal with the deficit? Number one, tax the hell out of the rich. Number two, invest in new energy like solar, wind and nuclear. And in number three, invest in public works and projects that employ people. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. I don't think that was that critical, actually. I wanted to read it cold. I didn't want to. I didn't want to I read it. That was critical. I, that was I a actually, very measured response. I thought that was super nice, actually. Yeah. And I thought that, <laughs> I actually thought that was great. I didn't read I, on purpose. I didn't want to read the entire thing until I read it on the air. We've got some other interesting emails here. These are these are all uh, people taking swipes, which I appreciate because this this makes the show better. I want to read this one, but I don't know if we have enough time for it because this is now nah, I'm going to save it. I, I don't mean to tease you like that. But it's it's too big. It's about a word that I used. 
when I said spazzing out? Oh, yes, that email. You read it. Yep, do you think I read it. Let's read it right now. Let's read it. Let's 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 give the people what they want. Riaz Megji. You, you do this every time because <laughs> I'm still breaking habits. I'm looking yeah. at the clock and it's 956 and I'm going Riaz is supposed to talk to us at 10. And then I'm realizing that 80 percent of you are listening to the podcast and it's whatever time it is, whenever it is. And who really cares? Because if we're going to have a good conversation, we'll have a good conversation. If, if it brings your your heart heart like your uh, your heart rate and your blood pressure down a bit. He's, he's not on the line. yet. I'm still just breaking habits. OK, I'm breaking traditional habits of broadcast media and it's so liberating and i feel so alive aaron writes in and i'm so grateful that she did and she says eek ryan please it's like in bold and italics please stop using the term spazzing out on real talk aaron says i I listen to the show every day thank you and i've noticed you say it a couple times now and it's a super offensive expression in the disability community as it's derived from a derogatory term for people with disabilities like spaz from spastic. Aaron says, really, it's one step away from the R word, if you will. She says it's an expression that's used frequently. I know, but I wanted you to be aware of the impact of that language. I know it's not your intention to hurt people. We're all learning every day. Your show plays an important role in that for many people. So I wanted to put it on your radar and I hope that it's helpful. That from Aaron, which I totally appreciate. And I wrote Aaron back and I, I feel like for a show called Real Talk, I feel compelled to say this because I, I really want to pull the audience on this. I come to you with sincerity and with humility and with an acknowledgement that we are all learning every day, like Aaron said, and she's right. And you may remember Leah McRory was on the show several weeks ago when I was running my mouth on our January 4th show about Aloha Gate and the politicians going to Hawaii and the premier's chief of staff went to the UK and Paul, you know, they're going to Mexico and Phoenix and, and we're going, what is going on right now? And that, that moment, that scene from Zoolander where Will Ferrell's character, you know, he says, I, f- I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. And I kind of in a moment of, 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 of candor and just, you know, being silly and, you know, to be quite honest, just when you're speaking off a script for hours at a time, these types of if something comes in your brain, you say it. And Leah really took exception um, to it. And actually, um, I'm grateful that I saw what she was tweeting about. We had her on the show. We had a great conversation about ableist language, and we want to have these conversations. This one, I kind of went, huh, because I've started to really I've really wanted to be aware and and real talkers. I'm relying on you now to let me know how you feel about this and what you think, because on one hand, somebody says, hey, listen, this is this is hurtful language. This is harmful or hurtful language or it perpetuates stereotypes or. And that, you know, you would say, OK, done, never again. But I've really been on this personal journey when I was talking to following the conversation with Leah, when, when people would say, you know, the word crazy you shouldn't use the word crazy anymore, right? Because it's been used as a slur for people with with uh, mental health challenges or people with mental illness or whatever the case may be. And then you sit there and you see like a like you know Niagara Falls, like the thundering waterfall, or or Connor McDavid go coast to coast and score an unbelievable goal, or or one of the biggest waves you've ever seen in the world, and you know. Your favorite big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, maybe drops in and rides this 80 foot or 100 foot wave. And you go, that's crazy. 
And I've kind of thought, is, is that like, is that wrong? Like, or I mean, I'm not the person to say, you know, there, there are these people that'll say, well, what words can we say anymore? They're taking all of our words away. And you're going, no, not really. Like some of the words that we're saying, we're asking people not to use anymore are like they're slurs. They're nothing less than slurs. And then on the other hand, I think there are some words where, you know, for example, like and I can see Aaron's point spazzing out and i was actually i kind of went back and i was like did i really say because it's not sort of typically part of my vernacular i not because i thought it was offensive but just because i sort of felt to me like something a teenager would say but then i thought you know muscles spasm things spasm it's not inherently a derogatory word now if you called someone if you were to call someone like someone's just going you know like like losing their mind about something like their favorite team wins the championship or they they won on the 649 or something like that. And they kind of, you know, they go wild. And if you were to say, look at him spazzing out, is that intended to be or is it a derogatory word? Now, I'm getting nervous even having this conversation now, but that's the point. We want our show to have these uncomfortable conversations. Michelle says, in my opinion, I'm cool with crazy. I'm not cool with spaz. Evan says people that complain about, you know, PC, politically correct or lazy. He says, learn, move on. It's not a big deal to be respectful to people. Context matters, but you can check yourself to be supportive. Lance says the English language has more words than any other. Retiring a few words is no big deal. Kim says in your conversation with Leah, she said to use the word you really mean. You'll sound smarter. That's my takeaway. Don't we all want to sound smarter, not lazy, not dumber? Like, Kim, can we say dumber anymore? I'm not even trying to be cheeky. Like, can you say dumb anymore? And and I'm not. I, this is not intended to be. What can we even say anymore? They're taking all our words away because I don't believe that's not my perspective. And I want to be contemplative. This one, I kind of went, huh? And I've been thinking about it. And, and, and this is a compliment to Aaron. I've been thinking about it all weekend. I, I've been sort of chewing on a couple of the last things you say. And I, I think that, like, there's a little bit of context that, man, sir, you, you referred to, you know, the, the surfer riding the crazy wave. Well, you're referring to crazy as as an inanimate object, yeah. as something that gave you this big thrill in your life. You know, I think that we can we can kind of all see the intent and the context in that person. You're not telling a person that they are crazy. You're saying this this, this wave was crazy. I had, a, I, had, I had an experience riding it. Um that being said, uh, the proper term for a big wave is gnarly, and everybody knows that. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Uh, when you talked about like a muscle spasm, I mean, you know, again, type of thing, right? It's just like I've I've had muscle spasms, and I don't think I've ever said my leg is spazzing out. I think I've said, oh, yeah, yeah. my leg has a spasm right yeah. now. It's like it's it's uncomfortable. I need to massage it out. So, uh, you know, again, some sort of thing. It's like, are you describing a a neuro body function which like to be fair as aaron kind of pointed out that is absolutely the root of the word spastic which is incredibly uh you know destructive to that community so i think yeah. that there's there's context and there's nuance and and i think the other things language is always evolving was it that's a great point when i don't even know if you noticed me say the phrase on the show last week uh did you cringe or wince? Was that was that a, a word or a phrase that you that was that was already on your radar as a non-starter? Um, I'm I, I usually I'll say like full full stop. I I didn't notice it last week. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I didn't notice it. I, I was doing twenty things at once yeah. last week, yeah. and it probably just went right over my head. So. Yeah. yeah yeah we always want to hear from you Aaron I totally appreciate the email and we do want to uh, we are constantly learning and that's the entire point and, and we also want to have 
difficult conversations. And we're not going to call show real talk and then never have real talk. You know what I'm saying? Um, Kalen says crazy has a different meaning when used to describe a person versus a situation. Uh, since the intention behind calling a person crazy is derogatory, but calling a situation crazy seems fine to me. Allison makes a great point. She says, it's like when people say that's so ADHD or I'm being so ADHD today, it really bothers me totally. I mean, I, you know, I, and now I'm like, should I even be saying, should I be like repeating these, should I be saying these things? But it wasn't too It wasn't that long ago that people used to say things like I'm, I'm so schizo, right? Can you imagine saying that now? I mean, I mean, I guess I just did, but we're having a conversation about this. Like people wouldn't tolerate it, right? Well, it's the same way that like, you know, in, in childhood, if we didn't like something that our friends were doing, we'd say that's so gay. Yeah. We'd never say that now. Well, some people. Yeah. I mean, when you hear it now, it's like wheezy, right? Easy, you cringe. Right? You cringe you, you, hard you cringe if you hear that. Big time. Oh, yeah. And I think that you assume some things about the person. Yes. Like they've not necessarily invested in, you know, appropriate education. Erica says, isn't the intent of the use of the word the most important thing? Sure. I mean, in here, and, and I was talking about this with my wife, Carrie, last night, and I said, here's the one thing when Leah reached out after I had said, quoted that line from Zoolander and said, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. I acknowledge, obviously, the, the phrase crazy pills immediately stigmatizes, uh, you know, medication that people may take that may go a long way in, in helping them live healthy and wonderful and productive lives uh, despite mental health challenges. Like, obviously, I acknowledge that. And, and it was kind of like the, the minute that I said it, I was kind of like, oh, I'm going to get some emails. Right. I kind of knew it. This one was not on my radar and I appreciate it. And I appreciate this audience's willingness to have these conversations. And we always want to hear from you. If this is something that that is resonating with you and you want to take some time and, and, and send me your thoughts, maybe your firsthand perspective on this. Um, we're taking your emails 24 hours a day to talk at Ryan or you can just go to our website and click in the top right hand corner. Talk to us and it gives you the email and the contact information there. Love these types of conversations, despite the fact that sometimes they make us uncomfortable. We're going to talk to Riaz Megji in just a second. Uh, wanted to remind you right now that the team at Park Power is ready to send you 70 bucks. That's right. 70 bucks is what they're ready to slash off your first bill. When you sign up at parkpower.ca, could be commercial, could be residential. Internet, electricity, and natural gas is their game. The promo code is 2021-REALTALK. And when you use that promo code, you're going to save 70 bucks off your first bill at Park Power, where they take 10% of their profits and plug them back into the community. It's what they do as a locally owned, locally operated, friendly local utilities provider. Also wanted to remind you that real talkers en masse are saving money and breathing easy thanks to Clean Air Club. Since we've been talking about it, we've received dozens and dozens of emails and tweets from you. The photo of that package arriving on your front door, oftentimes the day after you signed up at cleanairclub.ca. You tell them the size of furnace filter you need. It's easy to find out. It's stamped right on the side of the filter, which is right there, easily visible in your furnace. You let them know the size you need. They set you up on a schedule. They deliver the furnace filters. You're going to pay less than you would in the store. And as mentioned, your family's going to breathe easy at cleanairclub.ca. This guy and I go way back. He is uh, uh, both of us alum of, of the Breakfast Television television franchise. 
Riaz was hosting the wildly popular broadcast out of Vancouver while I was doing so here in Edmonton. He's got a brand new book out that addresses some of the challenges that many, if not most of us are facing. The health challenges, as in many cases, as a result of loneliness stemming from this pandemic. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the program author and my friend Riaz Megji. Thanks for making time for us, pal. We got you on mute, my man. We got you on mute. We'll get you off mute, and then we'll get you up. Oh, Are we good, Sam? There you go. You, I can hear your voice. You, you, first time broadcaster, long time listener, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> How are you? Hey, I, 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 for, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, I just feel like I haven't talked to you forever. Yeah, see, that, that's the thing. It has been forever. We both want to jump in, and I, I want to congratulate you on this show. I mean, I was just listening to the conversation you guys were having about the words we use in, in, in this era that we're in of, of just divisiveness, of the quick triggers and how our relationships are being impacted, and the stress levels are, are at an all-time high with what we're dealing with. So congrats on creating this safe space to have these conversations. Oh, thanks, man. I mean, you, you know as well as I do that shows are – are, are zilch uh, without audiences and the engaged audience. And, and I feel like if, if we didn't have an audience that I think was showing up every day for these types of meaningful conversations, I don't know how I'd feel about putting stuff like that out there, but I feel like we're, we're on a growth journey together and uh, the show is, has intentionally uh, focused on that from day one. And, and obviously I would imagine from the moment that you got the idea to write a book uh, like you have, it was probably uh, under a similar pretense, wasn't it? Self-improvement, personal health and wellness. Yeah, and it's the notion that speaks to what you and the team do every day with Real Talk. And this is something that I learned uh, doing the morning show circuit or just interviewing people for a living for the past two decades that transparency cultivates trust. And Ryan, like for years, when I, I would have the opportunity, much like you, to, to interview people, whether they were leaders, athletes, celebrities, or philanthropists, the one common thread that always stood out is what it meant to suffer in silence. And one of the most powerful statements, one of the most powerful sentences you can say to anybody, no matter what their circumstance is, you are not alone. And th this fascination with loneliness uh, was something I was looking at well before COVID even began. And I would document stories, I'd document the research. And if there's one thing we learned from the pandemic, it's just the pandemic accelerated this feeling of loneliness because pandemics don't change your identity. They reveal it. And they reveal this great uh, personal health and well-being challenge that we all experience, many of us experience, but just didn't talk about with the impact of loneliness and isolation. So you've been, I mean, you know, you've seen your fair share of red carpets. I know you've hosted a ton of events. You've presented at, at TEDx Vancouver and you've done work with TIFF, the film festival in Toronto and, and MTV Canada and a ton of stuff. You're, you, you, you love mixing and mingling and rubbing shoulders. And so do I. So, so over the past year, uh, what's the adjustment been like for you? What are some of the challenges that you personally have encountered and, and how have you adjusted or how have you learned from them? I've been really fortunate to have my wife and my son, who's just over two years old, with me during this time. And having her as a soundboard, being someone that's consistently been surrounded by energy, by people, by ideas in person, this was a big adjustment. And at the beginning, beginning of the pandemic, where there was the opportunity to share messages on a stage with companies of how we connect in meaningful ways, that disappears. The face-to-face -face interviews uh, uh, in person are gone. It was a big readjustment. And I said to my wife, I'm like, I'm feeling this firsthand being that extrovert that's 
always been connected to this energy. But then it was an opportunity to really regroup and look at the opportunity in front of us with virtual. Because we've all experienced the fact that virtual it, it, it increases accessibility, uh, it's convenient, uh, it's cost effective. But at the same token, the experience the, the two of us could bring, what, what you're doing with Real Talk and the opportunity through virtual communication now for myself is understanding that the camera mutes emotion. And now working with teams, whether it's sales teams or whether it's leaders thinking, I don't know how to connect with my team. Everybody's depleted. Everybody's disconnected. Now it's an opportunity for me to, to kind of recalibrate and, and look at the contribution differently of this new choreography of connection through a camera and sharing those ideas and, and kind of doubling down on that experience to help lift people up. Yeah, I think the camera thing's fascinating, Riaz, because like. You know, people are still I mean, you know, people still have like these cocktail Zoom hours, these happy hours. People gather together. I gather with buddies, you know, once a month and we play some poker. We're on Zoom. But it's just like you're still connecting. You're still talking. But there's something there that's that's not there. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's just not fully. I miss shaking hands. I miss, you know, pressing palms. I miss hugging people. Hugs and handshakes, man. I'm yeah, with man. you. And what you're articulating is the reality that we're trying to be present in each other's absence. And, and that is simply exhausting. We can have the intention to have the poker nights like you have. Uh, I've tried to do group dinners with everybody uh, from, from time to time just to check in because there are moments where you just feel like something is missing. It's almost like we're grieving the loss of the way we used to live our life. And if I'm walking on the seawall in Vancouver, I've got, you know, my, my mask on if it's a busy day. And as soon as I, I'm coming close to somebody and I see that person step aside, to me, it's a reminder that we've lost something. We're in this bizarro world where the, the notion of effortless connection has been disrupted. And it's difficult. It's difficult if you are the person that has the pure intention to reach out, to meet somebody, to talk to somebody, you're trying to protect yourself and keep yourself safe, but it's disrupted the whole way of how we connect. And we would never, <laughs> Ryan, we would never on a Zoom call, if we're at a cocktail party, here's my struggle with, with the Zoom happy hours, even though the intent is pure. We would never stand in a circle of a hundred people and just listen to two people talk at a cocktail party. You would have your side conversations. Those conversations of convenience have disappeared and they've amplified and elevated these feelings of loneliness and lack of connection all around. Hmm. I love the title of your book. It, it jumped out. Every conversation counts. It, it kind of reminded me of, uh, I don't know if you read Keith Ferrazzi's book back in the day of, of never eat alone, but it, it kind of like, yes. it kind of like prompt. It, it reminded me of that. You, 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 you write about the five habits um, that are important in establishing meaningful connections with people. I know people need to buy the book. Uh, but can we get into the five habits? Can, can you tee these up for us on where the focus needs to be? Absolutely. I'll start here. How do we listen without distraction? And on a baseline, if you're watching and you're listening to this conversation right now, I want you to ask yourself on a daily basis, if you were to audit yourself and think how distractions show up, what's pulling you away from giving someone your undivided attention? And the reason, Ryan, I wanted to focus on this habit was I was looking at the science of how we, on a baseline, communicate and connect. And some of the research I found was that the average person speaks at a rate of 125 words per minute, yet our brains can absorb four to 500 words per minute. And if you think about that, we're, we're, we're too smart for our own good. That's why we attempt to multitask. That's why technology could get in the way when we're 
absorbing what somebody's giving us or, or even daydreaming. It is so important to understand what's pulling our attention away because now more than ever, the opportunity to give someone our undivided attention, especially through Zoom and then being altered by what is said, these are critical ways to establish this meaningful connection through a camera. And I know you pride yourself on the research you bring to the conversations to make this a real experience. One of the other ideas, if you're listening without distraction, is asking yourself, how can you over-prepare to improvise? And what I mean by this is the critical mistake I would always make in my interviews, beginning of my career, I would do all this research, and then I would list out the questions I was going to ask. And then when the interview was done, I would gauge my success on that conversation of, did I ask all of my questions? Right. By doing that, I didn't allow for any moment of spontaneity to, to unlock something that was unique, that was real, that was courageous on the other person's side. And, and, and to listen without distraction, I encourage you to do that preparation to give you confidence. But then in that moment, much like this, there was no prep on questions. Uh, we have trust in each other that let's lean in, let's listen, let's improvise. And that's where real connection is going to happen. And listening without distraction is a solid, solid baseline for a habit to connect in in a meaningful way. Yeah, it's it's pretty rare for me to 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 plot out or to map out an interview. Um, the odd time for me, it'll be if if I feel like like tactically, it's very important because the subject matter can be somewhat confusing or something like that. Or you got to kind of stay focused or you get off in the weeds. But for the most part, I've always enjoyed winging it. Um, like, like you and I are here to a certain degree, like you said, because we trust each other. David Hurley, the political strategist was on earlier today. All I talked to him about was what time slot he could join me. And he didn't, were we talking provincial politics, federal politics, who knows? And I said to him, well, that's the whole point, David, is you don't need a heads up. You can talk about what you know. I was always interested to hear that, that Larry King, you know, now whether this is true or not, I mean, I would imagine he may be sort of underselling some of the prep that he did ahead of time. Uh, in my mind, one of the greatest interviewers in, in the history of the craft. Um, but Larry King used to used to say that he would he would roll into keynote speeches without notes because he always wanted to shoot from the hip a little bit. And I, and I wonder if, you know, you, you risk to you risk a couple of things here. I think, number one, people can can admire that and respect that. Number two, though, you may come across as though you're not investing in the person or you're not taking the exercise seriously. I guess you got to sort of find some middle ground there. Yeah, I think there's a fine line between an impactful conversation, a spontaneous conversation. And then if somebody is giving you their attention for 45 minutes to an hour in a keynote presentation to put the time into one, understand them, and then two, deliver with a service mentality. So they walk out of those 45 minutes being like, you know what? Ryan understood our pain points and then he introduced ideas that spoke to them. And here's what I can do differently. And I think the keynote presentation, uh, that takes... Uh, preparation uh, to deliver it and deliver it impactfully. What What do you mean by leading with assertive empathy? What's assertive empathy? Assertive empathy speaks to the conversation you were having right before I came on about the words we choose and you're acknowledging people for their response saying, hey, I, I didn't mean that in a derogatory way, but hey, I'm going to recognize the fact you're bringing this up. Assertive empathy uh, follows the model of relationship first, logic second. And the reason being, relationship is the foundation for any productive conversation. And in this polarized climate we're in, whether we're talking about politics or, or just ways of living your life, we're so quick to disagree. We're so quick to interrupt. We're so quick to give unsolicited advice. 
If we start with relationship first under assertive empathy and acknowledge someone and then recap their point of view to confirm you understand them first, that is a powerful step because here's what's happening in this culture. If we disagree, we're getting emotionally charged and then shutting ourselves off. And we're essentially, we stop listening. But if we stay open to that other point of view, especially when, when it's on the, uh, the, the uh, you know, the other end of the spectrum, and then we establish commonality of, I understand what you're saying. Let's focus on what we can agree on. So we know it's, hey, Ryan, it's, it's me and you on the same team versus the challenge instead of me versus you. Then the opportunity of introducing logic of questions, what's the real challenge here? What does your ideal scenario look like? What would it take for this to work for you? Once that relationship is established, once trust is in place, then we can challenge through our authentic and empathetic curiosity to get to new ground, where maybe you could introduce something that changes my opinion. But the only way we're going to do that is through a sort of empathy and putting the relationship first. I know that you uh, invested in yourself by studying leadership communication at Harvard Extension School. How much of what you wrote about in this book is is stuff that was inherent to how you communicated? Uh, I mean, I've, first of all, I've always wondered about your family. At one point, you and your brother were both hosting flagship morning talk shows in Canada. You and your brother. That's very unusual. It's like two brothers going to the NHL together kind of a thing. Doesn't happen all the time. And I always wondered, what was the Maggie dinner table like? I mean, how did anybody get a word in edgewise? And the parents, your parents obviously did a great job in teaching you guys how to communicate. When you, when you wrote this book, how much of it was inherent to you? And, and this is stuff that's always worked for you. And how much of it was stuff that you've learned as, a, as, a, as an exercise in self-improvement and evolving your communication? Here's what I value this question, because if we look at the contribution of any author or, or any book, it would be so easy for me to just say, OK, every conversation counts. Here are the five habits of human connection that, that I learned. And this is the way the world works. What I really wanted to create was a balance to personalize a narrative, to make it one, relatable, but two, do the audience justice with such a deep dive of research, whether it was some of the training that you mentioned or some of the rich research pre-COVID and then analyzing this social experiment that we lived through of how the pandemic really revolutionized our relationships. I wanted to bring a balance of both. And for myself and my brother, like it, it was really unique because when I got into the business 20 years ago, uh, you know, if you come from a South Asian family and you're not a doctor, lawyer, dentist, or financial expert, you're going to give your parents heart palpitations. They're like, <laughs> what are you doing? Well, you went to business school. What are you doing? We had a plan set. Right. So our parents would freak out in the beginning because it was unfamiliar. And they didn't see too many people of color. They didn't see people from the Ismaili community, which is our community on television. And now I understand as a parent, they wanted to protect us and make sure we could live an okay life. But then they started to understand what the contribution could be. So this was a balance of documenting stories and ideas and, and insights extracted from leaders over the years of all of these interviews, and then doing the reader justice with the science of how and why we connect. So it hits home and they can walk away from this book saying, I'm going to be more intentional with the way I connect and break out of my autopilot mode of, how was your day? What's up for the weekend? What do you want to do next week? And instead of exchanging information, looking at the way they can elicit positive emotion. More emotion is what we need right now to really connect at a deeper level. 
I love this from from Whitream who says, oh, man, I wish Riaz could talk to my bosses about this. Are these is this this book is not written for executives or for middle managers or entry level employees or aspiring, uh, you know, people aspiring to, to have a career or to parents at home. Is it I mean, are there universal truths here? Do you do you approach the same as a stay at home dad as you would as a CEO? Absolutely. Absolutely. That that question of I wish you could speak to my boss. This is a message for a CEO. This is a message for the janitor. Mm. And one of my favorite interviews was with Chris Gillibo, who was a thought leader, because he came in and he wrote the book, The Art of Nonconformity. And I remember he, he said in a quick interview, he's like, act like a janitor, not a CEO. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he's like, the janitor knows everybody's name. Yeah. The janitor's connected to every single person. And the CEO may operate at a high level and forget to put people first. But if we're going to get through this pandemic, if we're going to thrive post-pandemic, one of the most interesting questions I believe we can ask is not what is the world going to look like in a hybrid reality? The question we need to ask ourselves is how do we connect in meaningful ways regardless of the context in front of us? And that not only includes habits in, in, in a book I could write or contribute, but that just how can we elevate ourselves and continue to act like positive human beings? Because in many ways, we've lost it in the digital space and in, in our polarized climate, we've become enemies instead of allies. Are you when you uh, I mean, this this whole pandemic, I, you know, we talk about things like economic recovery and, and you know, we, we started the show talking about the quote unquote new normal and things like that and how most people that I've uh, spoken with actually don't prefer that phrase, the new normal. I think people are eager to get back to, you know, 18,500 people falling over each other and spilling beer in a stadium at a, at a rock concert or a game or fundraising galas. And, you know, the other day I tried to tie a bow tie and realized that I kind of forgot I've lost my muscle memory. And it was like, that was my moment where I went, this has gone too long. I forget how to tie. I used to be able to tie a bow tie in an Uber uh, without a mirror and <laughs> and now I don't even remember how to do it um, but have you taken like on a personal um, or I mean you interviewed a lot of people to write the book too so you can take this however you want but, but with regards to sort of reinvention or hitting reset and so many people I, I think this is going to be and in some cases it's heartbreaking because people have lost their careers or lost their businesses or lost their house I mean the you know some people have lost loved ones I mean the pandemic has obviously been devastating to people in different ways um, but a lot of people, I think, are, are, are going to emerge out of this like the Phoenix. You know what I mean? H have you approached it like that? Have you have you sort of issued that challenge to yourself or picked up on that from people that you've been speaking with? Yeah, th th this is this is a great narrative that, that you're articulating for us, Ryan. Uh, the, the biggest <clears throat> perhaps pivot, most overused word of 2020 <clears throat> that stood out for me. Hold on one second. Yeah would be creation over consumption. And here's what I mean by this. Uh, the late pioneer of loneliness research, Dr. John Cassiopo, really looked at the idea of how do we use technology uh, for good? Because, you know, we saw, social media is a double-edged sword in many ways, and it's easy to condemn it. But if we look at the idea of intentional connection through creation versus consumption, this is something that I looked at of how can I show up in ways that one could provide value to the audience? How could I uh, create questions that could engage the audience and allow myself to learn more and listen more? 
And how can I create more interactions using video? Like if it's somebody's birthday, I'm not just texting them words. I'm sending them videos now because face-to-face that connection is one of the greatest ways we can combat loneliness. And instead, if we're using technology in the consumption mode, passively scrolling, passively eavesdropping on conversations, we're going to end up falling into a trap of inadequacy of, oh, that personal highlight reel is going to impact me and thinking, well, their life looks pretty good. How come, how come I'm not that happy? And then I'm going to fall into this hole. So I really challenge myself to operate with creation over consumption. And that little twist of how you're going to post on social media is a philosophy of look at you is always greater than look at me. How and do that you, just involves asking the questions. How, how do you approach social media in, in your own personal life? I mean, do you, do you have do you have rules in place? Do you have times that you go on there? Do you have a, do you have a way that you, uh, you know, if, if, if you were to get out of this interview, it's highly unlikely considering this remarkable audience. But if somebody had just been blowing you up on Twitter this entire time and smearing your name and saying, I never enjoyed you on TV anyway, Riaz, do you respond to that stuff? Do you engage that stuff? Do you walk away from it? How do you approach it? Interesting. My idea of if somebody, yeah, if somebody's coming at me with a personal attack, I ignore the trolls. Mm. But if somebody is providing a point of constructive criticism that identifies a blind spot where I could reflect and think, I didn't think of it like that. I didn't see it like that. And this could actually be constructive or productive. I'll engage. I'll engage. Yeah. And- and, and, and that's what we need because sometimes uh, th- I think the greatest need we, we all have is the, the craving to be appreciated, the craving to be validated. I've had trolls attack my wife and my wife, you know, she gets upset. I'm like, why? If someone is taking the time to attack you on a personal level that doesn't know you, a part of me is like, I feel sorry for that person because is their life that bad that they have to inflict that negativity on someone they don't even know? But I also recognize in the public eye, if you are going to make a contribution, uh, there is an acceptance on my part. There will never be 100% approval. One, I accept it. And then two, I stay open to the idea if somebody's challenging, if you're watching this and listening to this and saying, Riaz, this is BS, hit me on Twitter. Let's have a conversation about what I might, I might be missing. Because how do I operate under social media, Ryan? That was your question. I always maintain a beginner's mindset. Because in the beginner's mind, there are many options, but in the experts, there are few. So I will stay open to the idea of constructive criticism. Hmm. I love it. I, I find that even like when you talked about distracted listening out of the gates here, um, if you're just tuning in, if you're if you're live streaming or audio on Mixler, we're talking to Riaz Meghji, he's the author of Every Conversation Counts. And you talked about distracted listening. And I think this is because I'm I'm wrestling with this in my personal life. You know, when someone will say something and you immediately it means something to you and it resonates with you. Um, For me, it's always been shutting off work or shutting off um, public availability when I walk through the door of my own home. And it was one thing when it was my wife and I. And it's another thing now that we've got a little guy, the light of my life um, in so many ways, as I know that you're such a proud dad, too. And. Wyatt, I said to him on Friday, just a few days ago, um, I said, hey, kiddo, so we spend Saturdays together. Mom gets the day off. She gets to do whatever she wants. And it means that I get to stay married. And I said, and we call it Dadder Day. And I said, I said, hey, Wyatt, you know what tomorrow is? And he says, Dadder Day. And I said, and, and I said, and, and I'll tell you what, I said, Monday's show is booked. And do you know what that means? And he goes, what? And I said, I'm not going to be on my phone 
all Datterday. And he jumps up and he runs to the top of the stairs and he yells down to Carrie, Daddy's not going to be on his phone all day tomorrow. And in a way, it made me smile. And in a way, it broke my heart because he was that excited that for one day, I told him I was going to get off my phone. And it was like, I rest, I'm still wrestling with it live right now as we're talking. Um, and that to me was an area where I'm like, I need to be better. Like with regards to pri- prioritizing my own life, no offense to any audience members or guests or promotional partners on this show. My kid needs to be more important to me. And I need a constant reminder of that. That's an area of weakness for me. That thank you for revealing that and sharing that. That is, that is the definition of real talk right there. And what a moment a sobering moment to identify a blind spot from, from your own son. How old, how old is, is your son? Yeah, he's five. He's five. What's your son's name? Wyatt. Wyatt. Okay. When you write your book one day, cause I know it's coming with the wisdom you've gained over the years. There's gotta be a moment of sharing that story with Wyatt because every parent will go through that. It is so easy to become distracted. Work-life balance disintegrated during the pandemic. Yeah. And it's so easy to forget because it, we move at such a rapid pace. And what a beautiful reminder from Wyatt to say, hey, dad, you know, slow down. Slow down. I'm, I'm here. And how many of us, I'm guilty of this too, as I'm writing the book, you know, we're trying to share this message. And it's it, when you're so passionate about something, it's easy to forget about what's going on around you. And I mean, there's a technical term for people that are on their phone all the time in front of their partners. It's called fubbing. And it's disintegrating relationships where somebody's talking and you're like, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Because your brain, again, can absorb more than 125 words per minute, right? So you're like, yeah, uh-huh. And that simple thing is saying this, this, this phone is more important than you. And at a young age, they're watching us, right? We're their role models. And watch when they get into their teens and they start doing it to us. You're like, hey, I'm right here. It's like, well, we started it. Yeah. And what an opportunity from Wyatt to say, hey, dad, I love Datterday. That's a great term, by the way, Datterday. Steal it. I stole it. I stole it from a buddy. I didn't come up with it. I stole it. So you're free to steal it too, pal. Um, Hashtag Datterday movement. Hashtag Datterday. You got it. Uh, Emma says that, yeah, this is the definition. Tracy's uh, of real talk. Tracy says this is something all parents struggle with. Yeah, Sandra, all Sandra needs to do to make me, she's, Sandra's trying to make me cry right now. Um, not really, because she put a little smiley face, but she just said, cats in the cradle, right? Like that song that I don't want that song. <laughs> the song, this is a true story. It was like probably six months ago. Wyatt and I are hanging out. We're having waffles and I just had it on a playlist and that song came on and I like went into this zone of like hyper analyzing every single lyric and he's just sitting there, you know, smearing his piece of waffle through the maple syrup. And I'm sitting there having this like meta moment. Uh, (laughs) But I don't want my kid to remember me as being the guy that was always like you described, like with a screen between me and him. I feel like I've totally hijacked our conversation and taken it in this direction. But but, you you know, you're, you're writing about conversations that count and meaningful relationships and human interaction and Look at this. You've you've got me laying on the couch right now, Riaz. Well, what we're doing and what you're sharing is the idea of being a role model for empathetic curiosity. And by you sharing this with the audience and me even getting to know Wyatt and your family and Carrie a little bit better, it is just a reminder for all of us as parents that when we go home tonight and that phone's in front of us and that email ping comes in, and if you're fortunate enough to have a child in front of you, 
Let's push it aside. Yeah. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to remember this story that you told me. And actually that is a big part of the meaningful connection that the personal reveals the stories. That's where emotion lies. If it, it's so easy to forget that in the virtual world because we're so quick. Let's get down to business. What's the agenda? Let's get in. Let's get out. But let's remember. Let's check in on that human level of, hey, Ryan, man, how's Wyatt doing? How's Carrie doing? You love being a dad? Great. Tell me about this. What are you guys looking forward to for the next dad or day? These are the moments that are going to bond us. And these are the moments we're going to remember. I guarantee you a year from now, if we're like, hey, remember that last time we connected on Real Talk? I'm going to be like, how's Wyatt doing, man? He's six. Is he still catching you on the phone? Well, it's I, real. Yeah, I can't wait. And he's, yeah, he's going to find, he's a smart kid. He's going to find a way for, for my phone to accidentally fall in the tub or something. He'll, he's good at that. He'll find a way to make sure that he gets the attention that he deserves. Pal, if this was any other year that you were releasing this book, although who knows, maybe you wouldn't be releasing a book if it was any other year. But if it was, um, you'd be here with me in studio um, and uh, you, you can't see it on camera, but uh, we do have a Real Talk beer fridge. You and I might dive into that or have a coffee and sit around and talk after the fact and, and we'd have a great time. But in the meantime, uh, let me remotely um, can, but sincerely congratulate you on this new book as a friend and as a former colleague. I'm so proud of you. I want people to know that they can find this anywhere they get good books. Um, you can find it on Amazon. We always prefer to send people to your favorite local bookstore. Every conversation counts. Five Habits there. The Five Habits of Human Connection that Build Extraordinary Relationships by Riaz Megji. Thanks for making time for us today. Ryan, you're amazing, man. Thanks for creating this space for conversations. And uh, thank you to the audience for listening today. It's a total pleasure to connect with you again, pal. It's good to see your face. That's Riaz Megji, just an absolute beauty and the author of Every Conversation Counts. Did you know that the team at Alta Moving and Storage for many years has been locally owned and operating and they were one of the first to get their hands on these pod style moving containers it says a lot because now this is the trend this is where the industry is going if you're going to be moving yourself and you well you've got a house full of stuff or a condo or an apartment full of gear and all it's doing is stressing you out if you're like me the thought of moving is like your worst nightmare this is who you want to call they take pride in alleviating the stress of folks that have been maybe delaying moving for quite some time because of just what's involved. The pod style container allows you to move at your own pace. Plus, they got those frog boxes, the eco-friendly moving box solutions, and long and short-term storage if you need it. The team at Alta Moving and Storage wants your business, and you can find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com, or of course, you can always give them a call at 780-993-ALTA. 780-993-ALTA. Also wanted to give a big shout out to the team at Grand Dog Essentials. I've oftentimes told you, I don't know if there's a, a bigger endorsement or if there's something more that I could tell you that would that would mean more than we feed our dogs with Grand Dog's Essentials quality raw food. And we have for a couple of years before we started doing business with them. They deliver to our doorstep on the pace that we've set up. Our dogs blow through these things. And of course, the team at Grand Dog makes sure we don't have to head out and go shopping. The food is sourced and produced in central Alberta by a master butcher and his team. And the Grand Dog team, family owned, is ready to talk to you to find the nutrition segment that works for your dog. So if you're seeing from your four-legged family member low energy or a dull coat or skin irritation, they're scratching a lot, they're refusing to eat maybe, you're going to want to reach out to Grand Dog Essentials. And if you use the discount code REALTALK on their website, they're going to take 10% off your first time order. 
Wanted to get to a couple of emails. Uh, what a conversation with Riaz Megji, hey? That guy is just like... Oh, that was incredible. It was just like, what a... What a like kind soft-spoken impactful right? like i just when he talks about empathy it's just like you can kind of just see it on his face he's this wonderfully just sort of passionate empathetic person you know how he just you know it says something about it that we go in this conversation that's going on tangents and it's going everywhere and the one thing that he latches onto is your relationship with wyatt you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's just like that's that that shows how meaningful that was. Yeah, he's always been a really I've always known him to be a very sincere guy and and I really appreciate where he's coming from and I just you know as a as a as a television former television host myself watching him work was always I mean he just he, he conducts these masterful interviews where he really and I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anybody that watched or is listening to the podcast later um Riaz has no it seems to have no problem connecting with people so i was really interested to pick his brain on kind of the science behind it mm, yeah. or the approach to those conversations um robert wonders he says right you got wyatt a fishing pole yet sure do bud <laughs> he says we know a really good spring walleye fishing hole and then robert says if you care to join us you're welcome anytime hey anybody that's going to share their their walleye secrets we'll take them if you follow me on instagram or if you don't you can give me a follow at ryan jesperson you can see you'll have to scroll back a little bit but you'll see wyatt caught his first wallet start to finish like literally reeled it in himself the whole i mean we you know we got the net and everything but but wyatt his first fish it's one of my favorite photos of him and you can see it um Okay, let's get to a couple of emails. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. This is how you get in touch with this. Uh, this from Bill. Bill listening in from beautiful Cochrane, Alberta, just outside Calgary. He says, uh, as a longtime listener to Daniel Smith on the radio, I was saddened by her departure from the airwaves. Daniel joined us for an exclusive, her first interview after leaving Chorus Radio a week ago today. Bill says, I was also saddened when I discovered you'd been let go from Chorus Radio. Both of you talented in providing respectful forums for discussion of important events where differing points of view are valued as key to getting to the best solutions. Bill says, as I've, I've learned from watching Real Talk, that the departure has actually been a good thing. It's resulted in a new forum where we can speak like adults, not fear a slip of the tongue. He says, I'm wondering if you can help me. He says, I was listening to your Friday show with, with Kathleen Smith and Stephen Anderson in that interview. And he says, without directly saying it, both of them highlighted something that's concerned me for a long time. And that's that our political system doesn't seem to attract the best people, says Bill. It seems to attract people who want to be in charge, but people that aren't necessarily prepared to lead. This seems to be regardless of party. It's a pervasive issue, and it largely applies to both provincial and federal structures. Bill says regardless of party, they all do what they what they guess will support their reelection, not what's the right thing to do. And Bill says, and if, if I look back on my own lifetime, when I when I try to think of examples of real leadership, I think of Peter Lougheed. Ralph Klein in his first term, Bill clarifies, Lester B. Pearson, he says, and I might suggest Ed Broadbent and Jack Layton. None were perfect by any means, but in my memory, oftentimes each did the right thing when necessary and let the chips fall where they may. How's that? A, a letter that recognizes Ralph Klein and Jack Layton's leadership styles. I I was very impressed with that email. When I, I like that. I was he just like, this guy really sort of like... Yeah, I I know you have more of this email to get to, so I'm not going to jump in too much here. But just I well, I invited you in. Oh, that's fair. I um, yeah, <laughs> come on in. All right, all right, all come right, on all right. in, Sam. You know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about uh, West of Center, that CBC podcast. They did a deep dive with um, 
uh, with Joe Clark a little while ago. And in the interview, he goes in a whole bunch of different places. But at one point in time, he actually talks about how in the time that he was in government and in opposition, that him and uh, at the time, Pierre Trudeau and, and Ed Broadbent all had an incredibly high level of respect and a good working relationship yeah. with each other. And, you know, if you think of those three individuals, like that was a time in, in Canada when we really had leaders at the top. You know what I mean? So it's just like I, I get nostalgic for the idea of somebody that gets into it for leadership and not just personal gain. Yeah, I was interested in David Hurley's impression when he asked him about Aaron O'Toole and his new TV spot that's introducing himself to Canadians. Uh, if you missed it, you can find it. Of course, you know where. Um, Bill goes on to say, as, as Kathleen, as Kiki Planet suggested on Friday, I would like to get involved. I'd like to get more involved, but I've not been able to find any forum where Joe Public could engage with his or her fellow citizens to discuss changes to our democratic systems. He says, I've, I've had some thoughts like pay our elected officials very well, but set term limits and have accountabilities that could extend to criminal charges when fingers are caught in the cookie jar. He says this lack of accountability for lousy behavior uh, largely seems uh, uh, does not or says the lack of accountability uh, exists throughout government. He says, are you aware of any forums as I've described them? I would appreciate if you could suggest any direction I might explore. Thanks for your forum. Keep the honest discussion going. Bill, I know this is not what you're asking, but I'm going to say here. <laughs> that's the first one. But you're already here. So that's good. I think of the team at the next 30. Uh, we talked to them on uh, what was it like Tuesday or Wednesday of last week about the budget. Um, I know that they're doing their best to get citizens engaged. I think it's I think it's important to 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 find and I'm curious now Sam will answer this, but I think you you find opportunities to to volunteer your time or to contribute your efforts in, in ways that you think you can make a meaningful contribution um, in, in an area or or in a forum that matters to you. So whether that's talking to a school trustee and volunteering or whether that's running and seeking a spot on the school board, whether that's volunteering on the campaign of someone who's, who's striving to be on city council, whether it's running for council, you're Yourself, getting involved in a constituency association, uh, getting involved in a group that advocates for folks, um, you know, supporting with donor dollars or otherwise uh, nonprofits that that work to, um, you know, uh, combat some of the problems that you've identified here, Bill. I think that there are a lot of different. different so, I, so I don't know if I can point, you know, without knowing specifically, I don't know if I can point in it in that much of a direction. But what I can say is I know that messages like this mean an awful lot because it reiterates to us who is tuning into this show and it's people that recognize deficiencies and that want to address them. Yeah, sure. Um, I like what you said about, about uh, bring it close to home, volunteer with, you know, municipal politics or, or community leagues or, or support, you know, groups that impact something that you care about in your community. And, and I say that because uh, local level politics are very, very interesting because they have, you know, probably the most direct impact on people's day-to-day -day lives, and they tend to not be hyper-partisan. I mean, there's a lot of partisan affiliation in local politics, but I think that, you know, a very good place to start turning down the temperature of the conversation is in a place where there aren't parties screaming at each other. Yeah. I'm trying to decide. I want to. I want to wrap the show here on Henry's email, and I'm trying to decide because he has censored himself in the email, and I'm trying to decide if I should read it censored or if it's counterproductive. <laughs> I think it'll be more fun to read it censored. So the kids. Well, no, your kids are still gonna have questions. You may need to put the earmuffs on here. This is you, the mug that I was using. The mug that I used one day last that was week a from great home. Mug. Everything's effed. Yep. 
<laughs> it's, but it's like I know this email. I read like, this this it's, morning. It's, what did you make of it? Well, let, let's read it first and let's see what the real talkers think. It's and, and I already like Henry because he signs off Henry, aka the Hankster. And so I'm like, all right, I'd have a beer with this guy. I'd have a beer with the Hankster. I don't even know what this guy's all about, and I'd have a beer with him. So, so I'm using this mug. Everything's effed, and I and I was using it on uh, on budget day. Obviously, tongue in cheek. And he says, Ryan is a relatively new listener. I am encouraged by the robust discussion and the editorial commentary I've heard for the last few weeks. Now I've begun the process of going back in your catalog and listening to earlier podcasts. And I appreciate your candor and your willingness to take on a vast array of topics. Your enthusiasm for open public discourse on matters multifarious is contagious. He says, but forget everything I just said, because here comes what I really want to say. On Thursday, during your interview with MLA Shannon Phillips, you gleefully displayed a mug, a coffee mug that proclaimed everything is effed. Henry says not only is the word vulgar, but the entire credo being proclaimed is vulgar and flies in the face of other proclamations made during the program. If you believe truly that everything's effed, then what is the point of any kind of discussion? I mean, if that's your starting point, then any optimism about the present and then even to some extent the future is virtually non-existent. I find this statement to be almost gleefully proclaimed. And I have to wonder, is is that really the message that gives hope? Henry says, I know that even daring to comment on this opens me up to criticism and speculation about what my motives might be. Nah. He says, let me just say that I've never been able to understand the need to stoop to vulgarity or profanity to get one's point across. He says, I mean, across the broad spectrum of your audience, there, there, there are always those that can take offense at this or that. But but this is also about an ideological statement. When we proudly proclaim everything's effed, it precludes further discussion on the matter. And I, as a listener, enjoy being challenged by new and different ways of looking at things. And I'm not at all offended by open and frank discussions about complex and big issues that we face. I'm encouraged that this show is prepared to tackle the many varied contemporary political, social and food related subjects like firm butter, says Henry. Having said all that, I look forward to your tones emanating once again from the semi palatial main studio located just outside beautiful downtown Edmonton. Perhaps you are also situated in a crystal gondola like structure that might just be the icing on the cake though the expression assumes that today's butter icing is indeed still spreadable best regards a real talker himself henry g aka the hangster great email love it henry thanks very much point taken and i appreciate the time you took to send that in honestly put a huge smile on my face and i will reflect on the points that you've made you look like you want to say something no, I, I was I was enjoying the email. I think that it's uh, I, a couple things. Um, there's a format that a lot of emails take that I call the criticism sandwich, where it's just like <laughs> your show is really really great. You did this thing wrong, but we still really really love you. Well, this is textbook. Yeah. This is textbook coaching. <laughs> yes. Uh, the second thing I was going to say is well, it resonates. We remember these emails. Um, the second thing I was going to say is just like I don't know near near that that last graph. I'm just like man, Hank is such a wordsmith. There, there's some uh, yeah yeah. The the language was incredibly articulate. I loved it. So he was, that was he, that's what I was smiling at. Was he was the, generous uh, about describing our studio. As semi-palatial mm-hmm. I, I, I believe it to be um, uh, Beautifully designed Modestly sized 
that's that's a good is that i think this room is a lot smaller than you guys think it is <laughs> the way it looks on the camera yeah people walk in they go oh huh huh the team at Eden Landscaping knows that this is right around the time of year that you're going to start getting really excited about getting back outside. And of course, a big part of that is making the most of your outdoor space. And this is what they do and it's what they do best. So if you're starting to think about things like, for example, an outdoor kitchen, I mean, an outdoor cooking space, maybe you want to integrate like a smoker or maybe an entire barbecue setup. You know, the ones that like your one buddy has and every time you're over there, you want to be happy for him, but you're just consumed with envy. No, that's just me. All right. Well, they also do patios and decks and outdoor rooms and, and gazebos and greenhouses and bring in big boulders and they do flower beds and intricate brickwork and arbors and fencing and paving stone walkways. And do you get the, do you get the idea? Nothing is too big for this team and they want to help you make it happen so you can find them right now at landscapeedmonton.ca eden landscaping the official landscaping provider of real talk we need to get like you know what i think we could do this is one of the best pranks we ever pulled in university this is my first public confession we laid sod we put down plastic first don't worry there was a girl's dormitory on campus and at two in the morning one night, we brought in two pickup trucks, two pallets of sod, and we sodded the entire common area in the dorm. Like I'm talking probably 800 square feet at least ish uh, laid sod in the entire area. And then my buddy's parents had a chicken and turkey farm and he brought us like five chickens and we we released the five chickens into the dorm and Presumably, we weren't there when they woke up, but whoever was first to wake up in that dorm and open their door into the common area would have found themselves stepping into a farmyard. And I would imagine it was probably sort of a beautiful sight. You know, I mean, you're welcome, everybody. You're welcome. I'm not sure that's what I would, I, I would not be opposed to opening my door in the morning and seeing a, right? a grassy field full of chickens. I really wouldn't. Yeah, me neither. You did them a favor. I know. You're welcome, everybody. Now, the university did have a reward out at the time for information leading to the the conviction of the students who had participated in this nefarious prank. We always felt, we always held the held the line, held the position that if we got busted for that and we got fined, we were going to charge the university for the sod because we actually noticed the maintenance team actually used the sod. So we were going to charge them back for that. I didn't see a confession coming on this morning's Real Talk and, and, and I'm not sure that Eden Landscaping is going to be thrilled about that one, but you know. I was inspired. What can I say? When I described them as the official landscape provider of Real Talk, it got me thinking. We need to get some. We need to get something in here. That oh, outdoor, yeah. that, that gazebo idea is maybe something we could I have. Like a, that idea. We could have. An, it would help with the, all the, the the audience tailgate parties that we intend on throwing. I, I built a pergola on my deck two years ago, and it's like the biggest game changer in my backyard. What's the ever. difference between a gazebo and a pergola? Uh, a gazebo has a roof. A pergola's got like a slatted top. Oh, the pergolas, right? Yeah. Like the, so they're they're more. Are they more decorative than they are purpose serving? I'd say. I mean, like they're purpose serving in the fact that like you can put like hanging plants on them, or you can grow vines up right. them, or you can do that kind of stuff, right? So it's like they don't really. 
shade wise they don't do a whole lot but they they make a big like mine has string lights hanging from it and it's just it's a spectacular space i just realized we're having too much fun today because i checked the clock and i went my oh my we're closing in on two and a half hours which is kind of our that that's when sam gets up and just walks away he's like you got me for two he's like i'm gone um and so we're gonna have to sign off and each and every monday you know we do it in a way that gets your foot started off right. So let me first remind you that the team at Kubi Energy has been in the solar game for a lot of years, and they're very proud of what their team's been able to do on relatively modest residential setups all the way up to huge commercial implementations. This is their game in BC and Alberta. They only work with electrical apprentices and certified electricians and they're Tesla certified. Plus they do all your paperwork. You don't have to worry about it. You want to know if there's like a rebate or some sort of incentive program like there is right now in Alberta for commercial solar install. Kubi Energy is where you want to go to learn more. You can find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Kubi Renewable Energy is also each and every week the proud presenter of a little something we call Positive Reflections. We ask you each and every week to send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com, a, a story that's really restored your faith in humanity, something somebody did to pay it forward, or a random act of kindness, maybe a photo that took your breath away, or a video that made you smile. Viewer James sent this one in, and I love this. I read the text before I saw the photo. He said, sometimes this is all you need. This is the best medicine in the world. With apologies to those that are listening to this on the podcast, you're going to have to see this. You know, we push out the YouTube file as a separate file for positive reflections for ease of reference. This, Sam, I feel like I feel like a real maroon asking you this is there a way to tell without a without a without a, a compass there is there a way to tell whether that's a sunrise or a sunset at first glance this is a big uh, question yeah that's a big question it I looks can't like a say. sunrise looks, yeah i i mean i'd need to know what direction we're facing yeah we don't know it's either a phenomenal sunrise or a sun now nah, i'm getting a sunset vibe regardless james he says the best medicine in the world we are inclined to agree this one from from Tavis, I loved this. Uh, this is their dog, Hank. You got to watch this video. So, so Tavis says, Hank hates to be left out of anything that his human brothers get to do. And around October, let's just roll the video, Sam. This is so amazing. He says, we picked up a used air hockey table for the basement and Hank surprised us with how involved he gets with the game. Check out this video. We'll take it full screen. I absolutely love this. Look at this pup. Air hockey is his game. He says he surprised us a couple days earlier. So we thought that we should get it on film to share with our fellow real talkers. These are the Newman boys and their pup Hank, who looks to be a pretty good air hockey player. Look at that tail going. I can watch dogs all day long. The commentary at the end is the best part. This is so good. Oh, those boys are having fun. I love it. And Hank's bark. Hank is right there with them. And this, we wanted to wrap up with this. Tavis also passed along uh, this poem. And we want to end the show on this today. Uh, this poem, you can read about it at bowseat.org. That's B-O-W-seat.org. This is a 
poem written by one of Tavis's grade six students. Her name is Zara. And her mom, Zara's mom, challenged her to enter the Ocean Awareness Contest. 5,300 entries around the world. And this poem out of Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, took third place. Third out of 5,300. It's called Across the Sand. And so we're going to show you. Here's the poet. This is Zara. And here's her poem. In the midst of a global health war, a virus that has ravaged every corner of the world, producer of separation, sorrow, and anguish, scarring the world forever, transformations creeping along. In India, a flipper emerges from beneath trillions of sand granules, then another flipper, until all four flippers have emerged completely and a poking light green head. The ocean's waves call and beckon, follow the ocean's murmur, record-breaking for India, 60 million hatching sea turtles shuffle along the sand where humans once frolicked. Families driven away from beaches out of fear, hope is reborn on empty beaches. Sea turtles are navigating in peace. That from grade six student Zara out of Lethbridge, Canada, third place out of 5,300 in the Ocean Awareness Contest. Zara, thank you. Real talkers, we'll see you tomorrow.